Here too? I didn't know that. Okay. Let me get my news Ooh. open here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here we go. I'm ready. Are you ready? Yep, let's do this. Okay. Do you need to pin your Twitter? Oh, yes. Thank you for reminding me. I do. So, on the, where is it? The Tech News Twitter account at TNATW, I need to pin the live stream to the top of the tweets. Boom, like that. Done. Okay. Okay, drink some water. Clear our throat so that I got green juice. I got water. I got coconut oil. We're good to go. Okay. So we'll let the horn. <laughs> oh, was that Michael? Or was that John? John, you sound like Michael. Where's okay. audio effects? Here goes the air horn. There it is. Top story. Well, happy Tuesday, everybody, is... Tyler, yes. check the hand raise first before you start. Okay. I got some bad channel. Okay. Donish and Vinay and JT and John. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. And... Okay, here we go. So the top story at this very moment is that Facebook's services and work tools return online after suffering a global outage for over six hours. And we think we might know the problem. Well, I should say, Facebook themselves have written a blog post from the engineering team and they said that, uh, yeah, they had a little little problem, uh, but it's fixed and they're sorry and it was an inconvenience and yada, yada. Okay, just think, don't need to read the whole thing because it's exactly what you think it would be. And and then... Tyler, sorry. Yes, Vinay. Sorry. The, the, the Facebook uh, uh, whistleblower is in front of uh, the Senate right now as we speak. Say again? It's locked. The Facebook whistleblowers in front of the Senate, I think he said. Yeah, oh, the whistleblowers the... right in front of the Senate. It's live stream. It's live streaming. Oh, it's okay. on live. Okay, well, he, jump in if she says anything spicy. And um, so, the we we had somebody DM. We don't need to live stream it. We just let us know if she says something super hot, but. Somebody DM'd, and I'm trying to find where it went. Um, but essentially, a chat between one of the people who was on the engineering team and a friend, and the friend shared it. And basically, the, the engineer at Facebook says, uh, Carl will actually be best to recall precisely what the message said, that there was a a bug bot carl do you recall the the message that i read from the facebook engineer that described what actually happened yeah just talking about auto merging tools where it was they just automated a part of it and that had been merged in and it actually was was not <laughs> shouldn't have been doing what it was doing I mean, the, I don't think anybody has confirmed whether that screen is, is valid, and there's been plenty of people commenting on that, pointing out 
um, potential issues with it. There's a little bit of text that's cut off at the bottom that calls into question the validity of it. But mm -hmm. it's definitely a possibility. Yeah. They also couldn't get into the data center facility, right? So I heard one engineer say basically they locked the keys in the car because of uh, all the engineers were remote and they didn't have access to that facility for whatever reason or the keypad pin number wasn't working on the cage. It was just crazy. And it's interesting because yesterday uh, it was discussed about how Tesla is taking door handles off of doors. It's all digital, electronic, and remote. And one of my favorite design points for anything is have a manual fallback in the event of a digital failure and not getting, not having access to a data center in the middle of this crisis um, is a violation of that principle of having fallback uh, options. But you have also that Facebook has grand ambitions for its digital wallet and, you know, currency. And imagine five years from now that it is like the most used digital currency in, you know, Africa, for example, where they're focusing. And then imagine that goes down for six hours. And it's not so different than even Sweden, where every Sweden is cashless, as Swedbliss can tell you. Uh, and Swedbliss can tell you, I've not touched Swedish cash in a decade, not a single bill or coin. It's absurd to think that you would. Like the, the public toilets take credit cards in Sweden. So yeah, you're right. We, I, I don't think I have had any money in prob well many years, actually. In fact, I mean, there, we, we have cards, it, of course. Right. In fact, the Burger Kings and Starbucks have signs that say we don't take cash. Like that's how little they take cash. That they have to get put up signs to tell people we don't take cash. What about the panhandlers, Tyler? And the, they the take hobos. credit cards. Swear to God, buskers who play <laughs> music on the sidewalk take What's digital payments? They call it Swish in, in Scandinavia, where you can send it to somebody's <laughs> phone number. They have the QR codes. They don't, they weren't, they're not, not, not so much the QR codes. It's more of a number. It's yeah, you just basically text message uh, like money to, to a certain number. And what is good is that if you're going to transfer it from bank to bank, it can take a couple of days. But when you Swish it, it's instant. Right. And so the it's not a joke that people playing music, you know, on a in a park would take money that way. I've seen. Yeah, there's all kinds of interesting examples. And I'm not joking about public toilets like there's a toilet in a park, like takes a credit card, not cash. Like everything is credit card. There's no cash. And once in a while, the power does go out. And I was there. I remember it fondly a couple years ago because I used to wonder what's going to happen when the power goes out when, when there's no cash. And I remember the power did go out. And when you go on to buses and things, you know, you have this card that's this digital reader and you need credit cards to take the bus, you know, from the airport and whatever. And the power was out. So the credit card terminals weren't working. And believe it or not, Starbucks was like, ah, fuck it. Go ahead and ha what do you want to order? We'll just you come here regularly. We'll just charge you next time or whatever. It's no big deal. And you get on the bus and the bus is like, ah, don't worry about it. You know, just do it. It's like because they knew it was going to come on shortly. That And that works when you have confidence that the system's going to come back on in a few hours. But, you know, what happens when you're not so confident that maybe some, you know, 
there's some major conflict or something and you know the power is going to be down for a while i don't know that starbucks is going to be able to give away free drinks and, and the and the 7-eleven is going to be giving you free hot dogs you know <laughs> so who knows or, 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 or what happens when you have 300 dollars worth of groceries in your cart and right trying to pay and get out of there well i'll tell it's you i'll tell you this in the case of sweden generally if they know you at the, they will say let's you know i we can trust each other that we'll settle this next time and they will and believe it or not i have to say this to the credit of swedes if if in a supermarket context if it came down to it the supermarket would say um you know you can, the total is this you know we'll just put it on a piece of paper here you go just bring your payment next time and as, i swear to you that Swedish person will come back and pay that next time. And and in the rest of the world, that really wouldn't work. In Sweden, that would work. People would come back and pay it, get guaranteed. I agree. Well, I mean, I've if you Sweden. don't, then you can't go back and shop. So as long as you live there, which you usually do if they ask you, right? They they Because there's not that many people in Sweden, then, then you're kind of locked down. Because right. you can't go back to the store. Right. Well, I mean, they're incredibly, uh, like, I, on, the, on that trust, like just insanely morally ethically uh you know very trustworthy and especially on issues like that so anyway i i just want to say tyler you said uh, using cards i don't even i barely use a card yeah. anymore no i, I mostly just have my phone and i just bleep it everywhere yeah you know if i could give one more example of where this is problematic we're overdue for a huge um, earthquake in Southern California, the kind that will disrupt power lines. And you can't uh, get gasoline out of a gas station if the power's down. So we could have potentially days of uh, inaccessible fuel uh, for transportation in the when that big one hits because of that dependency. There's also... Oh, we're kind of overdue for a major solar flare event, which will also take down large parts of power grids, potentially. Yep. And there's there's official warnings uh, precisely on that note. So this is not a joke or a game. It's like uh, you might you want to. And then, yeah, with the power grids down, you can't charge your electric vehicle either. And to your point, yeah, the gas station, many gas stations are dependent on electricity for the pumps to work and whatnot. So. How long the, does usually a solar outage like we, that? We last? don't know. It's been so long that it's kind of out. It's kind of like a pandemic where we, as a society, it, it kind of predates our modern society, and we don't have a good measure for what to do about it. With the chip shortage, it would be catastrophic for society. <laughs> it d- depending uh, on. Every, oh, sorry, Chris. Thought you done, go, mate. I think every chip would have to be replaced. I think a lot of chip. Yeah, it, it could destroy, damage a lot of stuff. A lot of the yeah silicon, right? Well, it, not it's only not that, just the chips, but the transformers specifically. Correct. Because if the power lines haven't been protected, the transformers go down. They can take multiple months to manufacture, and if your manufacturing plant hasn't got power itself, then what the hell are you going to do? So you can't even get power back into the lines onto the distribution grid. Depending on where you are, obviously, some places are actually working towards this um, to improve it, and, and early warning systems, solar satellites. And, and trying to shut down the grid to stop the propagation of the surges. But that's not everywhere. Right, but you could also... I have a question. De- depending on your part of the world, and, um, and people in the quote-unquote developing world aren't familiar with this, but like uh, people in the developing world are very familiar with this concept, that 
um, many countries, Thailand's one of them, and I've heard Mabwana mention this point as well in Tanzania, where um, the power systems are not as steady at 120 volts or 220 volts. They fluctuate, and those fluctuations wipe out your devices. So your blender gets blown out, or your hairdryer you know, gets fried. And this happens quite often in the developing world, where you don't have these really steady, constant uh steady voltages and these you get these volt surges that fry your devices so it's likely that in a, in a solar flare event you're going to have millions tens of millions perhaps even billions of devices get fried if they're plugged into the grid on you know just plugged into the wall actually tyler so that's why most homes here in india have a voltage stabilizer yeah that uh uh you know, you connect the main end, and then from there we connect it to the device. So, like refrigerators, TVs, etc., connected yeah. through a voltage stabilizer. Make a point on this, on the fact that with this analogy where we're talking about the electric grid, for instance, or a water crisis or anything like, normally there's an understanding that the companies that are providing these services are in some way responsible for the innovation to protect the services. So, the electricity grids are not to blame if there's a surge, but they are expected by both the consumers and the governments to put in place protections and to actually innovate and build on the system and, you know, make sure that the shit doesn't hit the fan. Facebook is not um, not beholden to such a thing, but it is in a position where it's providing both authentication services to hundreds of thousands of uh, digital products around the world and communication for, you know, the, the ranges I've seen today vary from 60 to 80% of the planet, but they, they are some of the sole providers of communication, authentication and internet in some places, but they're not beholden to the regulation to make sure that things like today don't, don't happen. So something kind of needs to change there. Just it's a night was it's situations like this where you have a, you know, a short outage is uh, almost a benefit of a sort of rehearsal to mentally kind of for those who go through the process of uh, recognizing it as a rehearsal, then it will be to your benefit. And then for those who don't, <laughs> it's a rehearsal wasted. But uh, yeah, Twitter had a good day. Well, yeah, Twitter had a record. In fact, their re peak record traffic of all time was yesterday. Clubhouse as well. And I made this point when we met here about uh, uh, eight hours ago that there was a clubhouse room that was created. In fact, I believe there was three or so that was dedicated to the conversation about what the hell's going on with Facebook, Instagram and uh, WhatsApp and Oculus. And I thought this was really interesting. And that was that room, as Evan, you were saying, it got up to like the peak limit of like 7,000, 8,000, right? So just the the idea that there are people in the world and a growing number of people in the world who when shit hits the fan they're the the perhaps one of the best places you could go is to clubhouse and i think that's true and i think when big uh crazy news is happening uh it used to be twitter was could be the best game in town that you would turn to and I think for many things, Clubhouse is an optimal format for figuring out what's really going on. So I, I kind of love that idea. And, uh, and I think that idea can be even much more improved upon, especially when that concept becomes more widely adopted, because then the, the, the real experts who know what's really going on will know, oh, there's this 
place where people are going to go wanting to know what's really going on. And, uh, and they will be in, you know, kind of cajoled to go there to provide the wisdom that they uniquely have. So, um, the key is billions, right? I mean, whether it's, we talking about power and, you know, energy or communications or social media, having resilience and diversity and backups, most people just don't plan for that. Redundancy. It's called redundancy in the system from a system architecture perspective. It's called redundancy, but, um, they try to, and the Swedes are actually very good at the whole redundant thing. But even, you know, en engineers of all types, including computer engineers, software engineers are very familiar with the need for redundant, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't always go to plan. And, and, Tyler, and I, just... I just, as an example, I, um, uh, was on the team that, uh, maintained, uh, data center uptime, uh, and communication uptime for a large healthcare system. And we had in our contracts with the major telecom carriers that there would be no single points of failure, that they would have redundancy in every single aspect of their infrastructure that served every single one of our hospitals. And guess what? Both carriers failed on that count um, when they had single points of failure and we lost uh, communications because they had violated the contract. So even when you have contractual language to do that, an agreement to do that, it doesn't guarantee that you won't have a single point of failure in your network architecture. Without that requires competence. It requires competence, right? That's well, the thing. well, not only that, but in the case of like DNS like issues, like Facebook just had, you can't. There isn't really a way to have redundancy on that type of an issue. Um, so that's yeah, where so Tyler, yeah. I was going to add, like, um, since this is Facebook, what happens if this happens to like an Amazon or Google? Because I'm, I'm particularly concerned about the smart home integration that people have, uh, Amazon Echo, you know, there's, you know, there's a robot. What, you know, if, if, the, if they have an outage, you know, all the services stop and that could lock you out. It could, it could, it could, uh, you know, be uh, quite bad, um, for the home, for, for the whole home integration or, or, or IOT industry. So I'm just kind of curious about, Folks who think about, um, I mean, Facebook is, I mean, I, the biggest thing that I, I was impacted with is not being able to look onto my Qatar Airlines mileage program to be able to change my flight, which is tied to Facebook. So now I'm going to probably go and undo all my Facebook off with some of those services, you know. But uh, yeah, like just uh, this is going to be devastating for IoT, home assistant, kind of so, so, so it's a home, home automation kind of industry. If, uh, you know, people are asking if you're providing echoes and Google assistance and the cloud goes out, what happens, right? Yeah. In fact, the headline from Reuters says Facebook outage is a dry run for worse web crashes. Kind of a, to my point there. Uh, Tyler, I'm just yes. wondering, um, like to John's point about the manual part, what is the manual go to? Like CB radios are not around. Uh, like what would you use if something happened and you can't communicate with the world on your own? Ham radio. Ham radio. Ham, ham radio. How many, it? It. Yeah. how many people have it? You can get a license, and, and then in, 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 in America, during a crisis, they waive the licensing requirements to broadcast. You can always listen. You just True. need a license to transmit. So There's also a text-based satellite system uh, that you can get a device for a couple hundred dollars, and the subscription is fairly low, and it's all satellite-based if they have coverage in your area. 
Um, so but if a solar flare hits, that satellite's out too, right? Correct. So Today. what would like not many people have analog radios. I still have my uh, shortwave radio from like my dad's shortwave radio still around. But I'm just curious, like not many people would be able to access radio even because they yeah, most so actually, their phones. It, it, on the radio side, it's interesting that in Tanzania, all the safari vehicles have these ham radios. And I was looking into it when I was uh, building up my Land Cruiser to, to cruise around Africa. And I realized that if I'm going to drive one day from from Nairobi to Cape Town, which is one of my dream safaris to do by myself and maybe some other folks in a convoy to keep it safe. But one of the things that we thought about is, yeah, we need ham radios to be able to communicate across the cars, which they already use in the safari industry because, you know, you, you don't want someone paying thousands of dollars on a safari being stranded in the Serengeti and they can't communicate. You know, often they're used to obviously signal other animals where, where, where they are and that can be bad for tourists because they all kind of congregate on the one animal. But yeah, like uh, the ham radios, you can get a license in Tanzania, but typically for tour operators. So, so in a in a in a solar flare, like those probably will still be working. I and have then the so, uh, Heyman, here, here's another option, a cheaper one. You you don't have to worry about solar flares. Carrier pigeons, my friend. Carrier pigeons. <laughs> I'll start raising them now. <laughs> That's the thing with any of these things. You've got to be ahead of the game, right? So with yeah. ham radio, if there was a you're never going to get the equipment when everybody else is rushing to get it. So you need to have it and know how to use it now if you want to be protected against that. I mean, just to be clear, anybody who has witnessed Black Friday um, sort of day, uh, people queuing and, and fighting to get into stores, um, arguing over pasta, uh, beating other shoppers up to try and get their hands on um, kitchen towel and toilet paper and that kind of thing, if anything like this ever happens where the, a ham radio or a CB radio or anything like that is actually required, that's going to be the last thing you're thinking about because there's no way whatsoever that will sustain any kind of society or altruistic intentions when it's every family for themselves. And unfortunately, Carl, you're, I, I'm here in Southern California. I am a prepper. Um, I'm not your typical, I guess, Southern Californian. Um, I believe in the rule of the three G's. Like when shit hits the fan, you need three things. You need gas, you need a generator, and you need guns. And those are the three things you need to maintain survival in this situation, unfortunately. And with the um, ham radio, that's the other, that's the one I don't mention, but I have them. You know, they're so cheap. You can go on Amazon right this second. There's a thing called the Baofeng, B-A-O-F-E-N-G. Those are cheap. They're like 20 bucks. Everybody uses them. Um, this will communicate very far in a, in a low communication situation. And so that's a good uh, forward investment. You know, download some of the frequencies local to your area so you can monitor law enforcement and, and, and first responder services. Um, but that's, what, that's our game plan. Wow, you're in California. Guns? In Canada, I guess water is number one. Food. No, I, I I agree with Chris completely, and that's the problem with in America where they're really trying to you know just disarm Americans because you got to be got to be crazy to think that if in life or death situations for food and water etc that the person with without you know with guns isn't going to win. I mean that's that's just nonsense. And I hate to go down this ugly road, but here's what happens when we rationalize our behavior. Everybody rationalizes their behavior, even criminals have a reason for why they did it. And so when shit hits the fan and someone comes to my house and takes all of my resources, they're gonna say, I didn't really wanna do this, but I have to. You understand I have somebody, I have family at home. And that's the problem we, we were faced with. So 
I'd rather not get into these incursions. I'm just going to show what we have and say, hey, look, if you want to take this on, be my guest. You know, and that's it. Okay. On that cheery note, we'll go into <laughs> the next headline. Hey, hey, guess what? I'm sitting, I'm sitting on the 101. I'm sitting on the 101 with uh, 60,000 of my favorite friends right now. We don't like no, each other no. at all. <laughs> Tyler, I think Iram is trying anymore. to get in as well. Okay. Aram, is she got her hand up? Thank you. Oh, yes. Go ahead. Uh, the question is, does the solar flare damages the solar panel on the roof? It's a good Probably question, not, but maybe it, maybe the circuitry behind it. It's yeah, you might have okay. some kind of little controller uh, from the panel uh, that might get fried. The, but the, the panel itself should be OK, but it's the microcontroller that might get fried. So maybe need to wrap that in yeah. uh, tinfoil or the, something. Yeah, the that, panels will generate the photo, the, the electrons. It's just converting it to the AC that your house is running on uh, requires some kind of uh, transformer. And I'll shut up. Right. Thank and you. and the, the DC current on the roof could be problematic before it gets to the transformer. Um, so, yeah, we I'd love I'd love to have an electrical engineer um, explain the risks and mitigations with solar. <laughs> Well, you have more importantly is the batteries that are stolen, storing the power at your place. Most people who have solar, it depends. Not everyone has batteries that they store the energy in. Ideally, you do. <laughs> so that means you're off grid. And then the question is, does the solar, would a solar flare up uh, kind of take out the batteries? To Not me, just a solar flare, right? It's an EMP attack. I mean, if China or Russia wanted to take out the U.S., they would just have to detonate a high-powered nuclear weapon in the atmosphere. Correct. And, and people don't understand yeah. this point, which, which is <laughs> nuclear bombs will wipe out electricity from, for a very, very long distance. But not even like nukes hitting the U.S. in the Correct. traditional sense, just in the atmosphere Correct. above. So. Yeah, and, and, and we, had a, we had a discussion just a couple of days ago about how China just announced that they have a non-nuclear um, mechanism now to create yeah. EMPs. So um, that lowers the barrier uh, to use. So it, 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 that is a real concern. Targeted EMPs. They said they can do it in a very specific range now. So it's a, a very targeted EMP attack um, with a very narrow geographic focus. So the... Other big story. The second big story is actually uh, the live stream uh, of Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen testifying before the Senate Commerce Committee. Facebook whistleblower uh, Vinesh, I assume she's still going. Yeah, the uh, I'm, I'm just listening right now. But all the senators gave their opening remarks, which was all about Facebook has lied to us and, you know, they've hidden from us. This is a chance to get the truth. So she's just started speaking now. Frances just started speaking. Uh-huh. So, well, okay. so she's making her opening statement, but I'll let you guys know. Okay. It's unlikely she's going to say anything new that she didn't say on 60 Minutes. Um, but let's, let, we'll, we'll know as soon as she does. So do keep us updated on that. Vinay, feel free to interrupt us um, if something sounds particularly juicy. And Frances Haugen's prepared Senate... Oh, she's it's all as a pre-scripted statement that she's going to make. Uh, so yeah, that's what she's reading right now. Right. So, so she's reading the statement, after which they'll do a Q&A. Okay. F 
Facebook putting profits over safety has resulted in a system that amplifies division, extremism, and polarization. Yes. That part's fairly obvious, though. I don't know that we needed a whistleblower for that. I think that falls under common sense. But I guess the point is she has the receipts that kind of bring validation to the proof of that. And Tyler, yes, you, I don't know sure that we talked about the fact that, you know, any of these whistleblowers, they get a certain percentage, right? Of whatever the fine is. Uh, that's on, on tax related issues. Yes. Um, and or even y- any uh, criminal. Any, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. If they have done something. Yeah, but I don't know that it will necessarily apply to this case because it's not necessarily illegal to put profits over uh, right. safety in this way. If they had, right. if Facebook was doing something that was criminal and it was punishable by a very large fine, then yes, she's possible to get some of that money. And it's, I guess, hypothetically, theoretically possible that they Facebook could get some kind of big fine based on her testimony. Um, and if they did decide, ah, Facebook, we're going to fine you for putting for putting profits above public. Uh, safety, well, then Facebook's lawyers are going to challenge that and say, there's no, show me the law that says we can't put profits before safety. Show me the law that says we have to put public safety above our our, our corporate interests. Isn't that tort? Isn't that tort? Stuff? Maybe. Or no? it's, that would be a very interesting case. So um, I think people are very familiar. I mean, they would instantly call in McDonald's as their star witness testimony to say, uh, "Did <laughs> you know?" I mean, it's just common sense that Coke and McDonald's and everybody put their corporate finances above, you know, uh, the health and safety of uh, their users. So every candy man, every sugar company. I mean, my God, I mean, where where would that snowball end if they were to rule that, you know? Companies are now responsible for public safety. But that but each, to, there was an interesting number yesterday, though, right? Seven billion. They, sorry. Facebook lost seven billion for one day of shutdown versus five billion. I think they paid fine, right? Previously on on their mar- yes, the stock. Well, yeah. it's hard. By the way, I would I would challenge this. Here's why: because yesterday, when the stock market opened, and by the way, let's see, it just opened a little bit ago, so let's see where it's at right now. But when the market opened yesterday, it would it tanked hard at the open, like far more much more than a normal day. It was like a two percent drop at the open, which is quite unusual. Not not ridiculous, not shockingly unusual, but significant. Now, sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in. Sorry, sorry guys. Uh, sorry, Tyler. Yeah. So basically, what she's doing is she's making the analogy that. Um, Companies like Facebook will not change unless like how you guys had made tobacco to change. And having been in Facebook, I can see that the system is built for not changing and Facebook won't change until it's forced to change. And Mm -hmm. I implore you as the government to make legislation and oversight to make Facebook change. Thank you for that. That's a great update. Yes. So, and it's interesting because she has said, I want to fix Facebook and then Essentially, she's acknowledging she's not going to fix Facebook. Uh, the, the, she feels like the government's going to fix Facebook. And guess what? The government knows damn well they can't even fix themselves, let alone Facebook. So uh, this is going to turn into uh, a typical American political comedy theater. So 
But the point okay. about Facebook losing seven billion or eight billion dollars due to the outage is actually provably false. Here's I'm going to prove that for you right now because Facebook stock yesterday did drop, um, and the stock dropped about eight billion dollars in value. And but that drop happened before the outage. And then when the outage happened, the stock went sideways. So it didn't really change a lot during the six hours of outage. So uh, again, the I'm looking at the chart here. The, the stock took a huge dip right at the open. I mean, a massive dip, like a five, six percent dip. And then when the outage happened, it continued to go down a bit, but the the huge drop was right at the open, which was not related to the outage because it happened before the outage. Unless, oh boy, where's the X-Files music? Unless somebody knew the outage was going to happen and did, you know, somebody shorted Facebook for a fucking 50 billion, you know, a $500 billion of shorted, which they didn't do. And we know they didn't because the whole, all the tech companies took a huge shit at the opening of the market yesterday before the outage. So it was not unusual that Facebook was falling. All the tech startups were falling at the open yesterday, including and Facebook. Also, there's another conspiracy Facebook. theory. What about if Facebook brought everything down specifically because of the uh, stock price falling? So people would just kind of like maintain, wonder what's going on. No. Nah. <laughs> Also, Facebook's number one shareholder, Mr. Zuckerberg himself, obviously knows that as well, Tyler. Yeah. So there's literally no, uh, you, you know, reason for him to change course. I mean, he's not being punished by the market. He's not being punished by government yet. So, like, who cares? Yeah, I just want to debunk the theory that, like, they lost that $8 billion because of the outage. They lost $8 billion before the outage happened that day, that morning when the market opened. In the hour the, right before the outage happened. The crazy thing about technicals is that it was already baked in a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, that right? it, yeah, to a degree. I mean, they were kind of responding to a couple. Of the, the market dip yesterday morning uh, was a culmination of multiple factors. And on a technical basis, it was not that surprising. The market's, you know, is kind of, uh, it makes sense that it, we would have an, uh, a down day yesterday, for example. Well, the, the, in the past month, they've all been kind of going down a little bit. I mean, Facebook losses are a little bit ahead, but Google's gone down like 6.5% in the past month. Um, Apple has gone down about 11% in the last month. Uh, Samsung's gone down about 8%, and then Facebook about 14%. So that they're all kind of, as we've seen, and you've mentioned this before, Tyler, that all the tech stocks are sort of becoming less favor favorable and, and on a downward trend at the moment. Um, but they're only, they're only five, I say only, you know, it's a huge amount of money, but five points ahead of loss. Um, of you know the other the, the average of the other three yeah for example uh here's a, a headline from exactly 24 hours ago now which is just before the outage the headline is why facebook stock crashed this morning and they don't mention the outage the bad news for facebook just keeps getting worse and facebook stock is down another 4.4 percent as of 11 a.m eastern time monday granted the whole stock market seems to be having a bad day today the S&P 500 is down 1.5%, and uh, and then they talk about the whistleblower and everything. 
And so this headline of why did Facebook stock crash this morning was written before the outage. That's the key point is all of that loss of seven-ish billion dollars happened before the outage. So um, the next headline. Well, on, on, yeah. on, that, on that point, Janet Yellen uh, announced that uh, there's a drop dead uh, time in about two weeks that if we don't get uh, the uh, ceiling, the debt ceiling raised, uh-huh. that it almost, guarantee, almost guarantees a recession. Yes. If they don't raise the debt ceiling, I don't even want to contemplate that scenario um, because then America is defaulting and we lose our AAA rating. Well, well, we have the trillion dollar coin idea. Pizza sized uh, platinum coin. Um, yes, I don't. We really don't want to contemplate that. And it's not statistically likely that. Uh, well, I I don't know, man. Part of me thinks the GOP would love to see the economy collapse under Joe Biden's watch, so that in the next election they can see how are you better off now before B- Biden or not? <laughs> and then they're going to be like, "But you're the one who drove us off the cliff when you didn't approve the debt ceiling." But generally, they have a America. Unfortunately, this is the problem with education: is if you have a very uninformed voter population they're not going to remember that the you know one party you know committed seppuku and drove the train off the cliff you know and they're gonna the gop is going to make the case that this happened under joe biden's watch well yeah but it's your party that didn't approve the to raise the debt ceiling that spent sent the whole world into a tailspin so tyler yes you said uninformed uh, people, right? I'm just yeah. wondering how much does Facebook com- contribute to news these days? What's the what's the latest percentage right now? Well, oh, that's a great. There was a poll that says uh, what percentage of people get their news primarily from social media. I think was the poll that we saw, and it's it's shockingly high. It's like seventy percent. Right. The reason I'm asking is because there's a Reuters article that just popped. It's saying that basically Pandora Papers versus the Facebook files. So just wondering, because of the heavy players, we're talking about kings and uh, people who have access to all these secret technology, the back doors. I'm wondering whether they toppled it just to get a like, oh, my God, it's like pull the kill switch, kill the kill switch of Facebook, like for news content. I'm just not, you know, just not conspiracy theory, just it's a Reuters article. I'll send it to you. OK, play it, Tyler, play it. <laughs> well, I'll let Ken get up here. Ken's quite insightful on these kinds of issues, so. So just a quick update, guys. Uh, this is Vinay. Francis Hogan is really throwing Mark Zuckerberg under the bus in the Q&A. So when, he, when the senators are asking about what's the culture, she said, look, there's not many other companies where 55% of the voting shares are held by one person. Um, and the question was, does he control all the algorithms? And she said, well, they sent out, sent out all a memo that we build the leaders, build the organization, and Mark's the leader, and therefore he's built the algorithm. Mm. So, so he's really throwing him under the bus. Mm. Yeah, he he does have disproportional power in that company. So, the next biggest article is from The Verge that Microsoft Surface Pro 8 review uh, has a new modern look, 120 hertz display, and improved stylus, but it is expensive. Accessories aren't included, and ports are limited. And then the next article is from Bloomberg. 
from Scott Carpenter. It says, Mark Zuckerberg's personal wealth fell $7 billion amid whistleblower expose and Facebook outages. And so now they've correctly updated their headline to include <laughs> that there's more than just the outage. And as we discussed and proved here, that it really wasn't about the outage because the, the, the $7 billion of loss on Facebook stock yesterday occurred before the outage. So, Bloomberg, um, being that you're kind of the default uh, financial news network, maybe provide better news about that. That's a misleading headline you printed right there. And I have the facts to back that up. So, but yeah, uh, big journalism wants to tap dance um, and make a clickable headline. And it's very unfortunate that we have legacy corporate media who used to provide uh, very fact-based headlines have devolved into competing with the likes of Fox News for your clicks and your eyeballs. And it's a very sad state of affairs, but that's why we have tech news around the world to dissect and point out their kind of ridiculous uh, de-evolution. Um, it says Monday, oh, it dropped, the stock dropped 5% Monday and is down 15% since mid-September. See, which is that's kind of relevant because when the um, with the Wall Street Journal's Facebook files started about two weeks ago, and yeah, it's ha they've had a bit of a tumble since then. CEO drops to number five on the list of the world's richest below Gates. Stock slides. Stock slide knocks his net worth down to just a hundred and twenty-one billion dollars. So this this poor guy, we need to do. Can let's get a GoFundMe, dude. Do a crowdfunding campaign perhaps. Uh, so the next one's from Coindesk. They say there's a filing that Circle, which backs the US DC stablecoin, received a subpoena in July from the SEC for documents on, quote unquote, our holdings, customer programs, and operations. Circle Financial is under an investigation by the US Securities and Exchange Commission. The payments company disclosed on Monday. And that's not a huge surprise from people who follow that space closely. And the next one is a review of Apple's A15 chip in the new iPhone 13, which shows big efficiency gains and adequate speed improvements with range from 2.5% to 37% over the A14 chip, depending on the type of workload. Okay, and this is why Apple, notably to those of us who are obsessed with this type of stuff, didn't highlight the data of the improvement of the A15 chip in their live stream event about when was that event? Anyone remember the date? I believe it was September 7th. September. Yeah. Yeah. So on September 7th, Apple had their annual live stream event where they announced the iPhone as they do every year, usually the first or second Tuesday of September each year. And they did this year. And this year, there was a couple of unique differences for people who have watched that event every year since the first iPhone and even before the first iPhones when Steve Jobs used to do them, you know, pre-iPhone. The We used to have to go to them in person, but now you have the luxury of watching the live streams from your home. And they're even kind of made for that purpose now. They're kind of uh, edited for the live stream. And... They used to highlight a couple of things every year. In recent years, they've really been going heavy on the privacy. This year, they did not because they couldn't because it's now been exposed to be a sham that, in fact, your iPhone has exploits 
and government it's been widely reported that Pegasus has a zero day on your phone and there was a a research security researcher who shared four zero day exploits on the iPhone in the past month. So your iPhone's a piece of Swiss cheese and they can no longer claim they have any kind of high moral ground or stance on privacy. So they didn't mention privacy at all, which is incredibly uh, uncharacteristic of Apple to go from privacy, 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 privacy is our main game and our unique selling proposition to not mentioning it at all in their last event. Also, they used to showcase the improvement of their processor each year and say it's 100% faster, it's 2.3x times faster, it's five times faster, it's whatever. This year they didn't because it's just somewhat better, (laughs) but not better to the degree that you would expect because this is uh, the nature of... uh, incremental improvements uh, as we get into the late, you know, 15th generation of the iPhone or whatever it is. Um, you're going to have marginal improvements going forward until we have a revolutionary breakthrough in some kind of new battery technology or quantum computing that fits in your phone. Uh, that might, we might have to hold out for some kind of DNA storage system or, or quantum computing uh, in a mobile device before we see a major, um, you know, change in the efficiency of the devices. Chris? Well, I was just going to say that the also the distinctive change is typically they market their products compared to their own products. And this time they said, you know, we're 40% faster than Correct. the competition. Yeah. I think. So, that, was know, that was interesting. Really a shot across, that was really a shot across Android's bow, you know, because as, as, as the app stores are, are starting to lose their foothold through legislation, right, with the um, um, the app stores now not being allowed to um, charge the uh, commissions and stuff. They need to find other ways to win over those Android customers, and part of it's probably going to be related to performance. So, uh, Europol announces the arrest of two alleged ransomware gang members in Ukraine, with help from U.S. and French authorities, as some think they belong to uh, our evil which is the ransomware gang that used to be in Russia that moved to the Ukraine. And I said this when we were, when the R evil platform was being used to attack the, uh, the U S infrastructure. And then Joe Biden went and had a meeting with a big, uh, Vladdy daddy over there in, uh, Geneva where he told Vladdy, uh, don't mess around with our core infrastructure or you will pay very dearly. And in fact, he even named it. He even said, wouldn't it be a shame if your gas pipelines, Nord Stream 2, where you sell natural gas to Europe, which is your entire revenue stream for your country, wouldn't that be a shame if those pipelines got taken out? Joe Biden. Just saying. Just saying. I mean, wouldn't that be terrible? It would be a, It would be a real shame if something happened to those beautiful pipelines over there. And... Vlad got the message that that would happen. And so magically, the all of these uh, infrastructure attacks stopped happening from Russia. And our evil sh- t- website turned off. And then two weeks later, magically, there was a new ransomware game that popped up in Ukraine. Oh, gee, I wonder who it is. <laughs> and so when we covered this headline uh, nine hours ago in Tech News Around the World, I even said, I have a little prediction. I'm going to make a prediction <laughs> that these are Russian hackers. Uh, 
And I should have even been more explicit and said that there are evil hackers because this is uh, very likely statistically. And now the headline has been updated to say that, that people believe that it is our evil. I do too. I, I assume that it's uh, that I don't, I don't need to be that specific in my uh, prediction. What is easy to predict is that they are Russians who are operating outside of Ukraine as Vladimir Putin has told them to do that. He wants them to continue to do this um, infrastructure meddling and ransomware attacks, but not from Russia's uh, geography because that can be tracked and uh, <laughs> that can, you know, uncle Joe Biden said, we're going to cut out your natural gas pipelines if we continue to see attacks from Russia. So these Russians, you know, moved to Ukraine, which, they, uh, it makes all the sense in the world and it's very unfortunate. And so you've got these, what would be interesting is if they're able to, although no doubt they know they're going to be watching for these Russian hackers in the Ukraine, know that the U S is going to try and trace them back to Russia. I mean, there'll be Russian citizens that will be known. However, do they have communications with the Kremlin and how good will they be at obfuscating and hiding any connections that they might have to FSB or the uh, Russian intelligence agencies? And they know that America is going to be looking for that. And they know they better come up with an incredibly secure system for any communications that they have with back to the Kremlin. So it's likely that that part will be hard to connect uh, the dots. But it'll be known that they're Russians that who formerly had connections with Russian intelligence agencies, but they're now living in Ukraine. And we can't show hard evidence that they're communicating with the Kremlin because they're clearly going to try and hide that. And that's not that hard. That is one piece that you could, uh, if you took uh, cares, could, could obfuscate to a degree where it'd be very, very difficult to make draw those connections. So the next one is about Orca Security, spelled O-R-C-A, which provides tools for protecting cloud-based assets, uh, is raising a Series C of $550 million at a $1.8 billion valuation. And that Jesus not, Christ. At cyber 550 at 1.8 at Series C? Are they just pissing money? Yeah. Well, the cybersecurity's uh, hot. But yeah, they just sold nearly half the company in this round. Well, it says... A 1.8 valuation, up from 1.2 in March, so it's actually about a third of the company. Um, that's that's not un so uncommon, uh, unusual for a C anyway. Yeah, I guess in a Series C too. The next one is that Sky Mavis, the developer of the NFT game Axie Infinity, which is hot, hot, hot. It's a virtual real estate game. They call it GameFi, like game finance, because it's a kind of a bizarre hybrid of a video game and finance. It's it's truly bizarre. Um, people are buying and selling virtual real estate like it's a game, but they people are making crazy money inside of this ecosystem. In fact, they've sold over two billion dollars worth of virtual real estate, which costs them nothing to make, essentially, because it's virtual real estate. What was the name of it? Axie Infinity. And Axie Infinity raises $150 million Series B, led by Andreessen Horowitz, sources say at a $3 billion valuation. 
And we had one of the key folks from Axie Infinity here in Tech News Around the World and gave us a little open kimono Q&A session. It was very, very interesting how they operate where you there's two different sorts of currencies in the system. One is the virtual geography in the game. And then there is separately a token economy for the governance of the ecosystem, which is kind of like a, a coinified governance, which could become many uh, think and assume and hope that uh, we could it could replace the traditional legal structures of corporations and LLCs and even governments. And in fact, there's really wildly ambitious projects going on there's one in bali where and they're trying to make a, a crypto town where every shop is uh has a coin coinified uh structure where the customers become uh fractional owners of the stores that they are cut that they custom for uh, that they visit and that they use and and there's people who have ambitions of creating cities based on this model in fact, uh, incredibly ambitious ones, including uh, Bjork Ingels, and um, and what's that guy's down? Uh, Who's the rich guy jo that's doing Joe it Lonsdale? Arizona. Joe Lonsdale, if I recall correctly, he, he's uh, the co-founder of um, Palantir. Is they're working together on a futuristic city in the desert down in you know Southwest America, and. Um, on this exact concept that you as citizens would have, there would be a tokenized, coinified governance structure where you can earn more influence in, in the government uh, in a gamified way and everyone shares equally. There's no ownership of land, however, uniquely in that structure. Nobody owns the land. The city owns the land. And or the or the government owns all the land, but you can have um, fractional influence in the government, kind of like shareholders in a company, voting rights. Brilliant. Yeah, it's wild. It's a really interesting idea. So the next one up is from the Financial Times. They say there's been a filing that Google's DeepMind, which is their AI outfit out of uh, the UK. Uh, reported about a billion dollars of revenue in 2020, up 3x over the last year, and about $50 million of pre-tax profits, its first ever profit. London-based group says its research is increasingly being embedded in commercial products. Google's UK AI unit, DeepMind. And, then, and they are one of the premier AI labs on the planet, so that makes all the sense in the world. The next one from TechCrunch, Chile-based Buk, B-U-K, or Buk, which offers HR management tools for Latin American companies, raises $50 million at a four point or a $417 million valuation. Neural Magic, which aims to boost AI inferencing speeds on off-the-shelf processors, raises $30 million. Tel Aviv-based Adaptive Shield, which helps secure SaaS apps to avoid data breaches raises 30 million and this is almost becoming a stereotype at this point like every fundraising out of tel aviv is a cybersecurity company and this is right 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 there along those lines adaptive shield helps secure SaaS apps to avoid data breaches from tel aviv 
what a surprise. <laughs> Another cybersecurity company out of Tel Aviv raising a bunch of money. Uh, Bloomberg, a look at cryptocurrency exchange Suex, which appears to be operating in Moscow and is accused of laundering ransomware payments. And they, these, uh, and that's those accusations are coming from none other than the U.S. Treasury Department. Suex is the first digital currency exchange sanctioned by the U- U.S. So you're not allowed to touch it because this is what a surprise! All of these ransomware hacks and all of these hacking schemes, where they're, yeah, they're ransom. They're charging money to get your data back, and they want you to pay in cryptocurrencies that they then go take to Suex, which Wow, what an amazing coincidence. Just happens to be based in Moscow. And they launder it, and then they get it out of the country, and then they go buy boats or whatever they're going to do. But what a surprise that uh, this crypto exchange, Suex, appears to be operating in Moscow and is accused of laundering ransomware payments by the U.S. Treasury Department. And if the U.S. Treasury Department's coming out publicly and stating that then they know that they're doing that. They don't come out and say shit like that unless they have the facts from the intelligence community who can track that shit down. And so, um, in fact, we read a headline, I believe yesterday, did we not, that Joe Biden's bringing together a consortium of, what was it? Dozens and dozens of countries to unite on this exact issue. Does anyone recall the scope and scale of that um, consortium? Let's see if we can find it. Biden um, Cybersecurity Consortium. Uh, oh, here it is. I just found it from CNN yesterday. Uh, President Joe Biden administration to convene 30 countries to crack down on ransomware threat. Uh, the White House will convene 30 country meeting this month to try to ramp up global efforts to address the threat of ransomware to economic and national security. Cyber threats affect the lives and livelihoods of American families and businesses, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said uh, in a statement to CNN. The goal of the alliance will be to accelerate our cooperation in combating cybercrime, improving law enforcement collaboration, stemming the illicit use of cryptocurrencies in these ransomwares and tracking them all down. And then the, the big breakout section in this article says, skeptical about Moscow. The first meeting of the multilateral initiative will be held virtually. It's part of a recruiting effort to cut off revenue of ransomware groups and figure out ways to prosecute them, according to the White House. In bolstering U.S. cybersecurity, the federal government needs a partnership of every American and every American company in these efforts. Uh, Biden in June urged Russian President Vladimir Putin to crack down on cyber criminals operating from Russian soil, but U.S. officials have been skeptical of Moscow's willingness to do so. Gee, I wonder why. After a brief period of quiet from some ransomware groups, following the Biden-Putin meeting, hackers have claimed multiple U.S. companies as victims in recent weeks. Yes, but they're operating from Ukraine. Ha ha. <laughs> you said don't do it from Russia, Joe. Got you. Tricked you. If they're not from Russia no more, uh, new, new cooperative a, and the U.S. officials have looked for ways to slow down the uh, cyber criminals that do not rely on Russian government cooperation. The Treasury Department last month imposed sanctions on s- cryptocurrency exchange that U.S. officials accused of doing business with hackers behind eight types of ransomware. And now we know which exchange that is. It's the one that's announced in the headline today, which is Suez. 
And you know, they know goddamn well where this thing's operating from. They know that it's in Moscow. They just don't want to, you know, poop in the punch bowl and make a big fuss. They don't need to. Just a quick little thing on this. Correlation more than, you know, conspiracy, fun little conspiracy thing. But um, the company I'm working for at the moment currently doing interviews and hiring for a second team. I've mentioned it um, before. And we use the Ukraine to spin up these very fast, short-term development teams up. And I must have interviewed maybe 10, 15 people in the past uh, in the past month or so. And apart from two of them, I think every single one of them had had recent experience developing with a fintech, either with casinos, gambling, or with banking. Now, again, I'm not saying anything specific, but almost every single How dare one you, of them, Carl? apart from the QA. And I know, I know, I know. I'm just putting it out there. Make of it what you will. How dare just you? Every single one of them had experience just saying. fintech. Just, I'm just saying. Casinos <laughs> or gambling, but something financially related. I'm just apart saying. One of them, apart from I, I'm not people. saying. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Uh, make well, of it what you will. Well, you know. It's just well. Here, I'll I'll take it one further. My uh, development team was Russians based in Minsk, Belarus, who have a whole lot of experience in a whole lot of related categories. Uh, I'll leave it at that. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. That's I love our new tagline. I'm just saying. Hashtag. I'm just saying. <laughs> so then. The next one is, uh, where did it go? Where did you go? So, uh, Warsaw-based company called Ramp out of Poland, which offers services used by crypto exchanges and marketplaces and wallets, raises $30 million. And that's a good round for a Polish company. It's good to see the Polish folks uh, getting into the game. Uh, Newark-based Duality Technologies, which offers collaboration tools for working on sensitive data, raises $30 million. Singapore Parliament passes a law that will compel internet service providers and social media platforms to share user data. Oh boy. What? Oh, hang on. Hold the phone, Tyrone. Uh, yeah. Good. Good. Hold on. So the Singapore government passed a law that will compel social media platforms to share user data with the internet service providers. Say what? Block content and more drawing criticism from experts. Yeah. Uh, you can add me to the list of people who express criticism on this one. Let's see. I just saw Michelle's photo in my... Here is Michelle now just jumped in the room. Maybe she... yeah, she is in the audience. And yeah. I think you have to check the hand raise. I think there's yeah. still a few addresses. I, I understand she might not uh, have any thoughts on this yet because this is breaking. And they, they're not mentioning Facebook specifically. But it's, this is interesting. This is from the Washington Post. Singapore passes most powerful foreign interference law aimed fears of ever-shrinking space for dissent. Singapore's parliament has passed a law aimed at countering foreign interference that is potentially so powerful, rights groups and legal experts worry it could crush public debate in a city-state where authorities are already frequently accused of curbing civil liberties. The law, approved late Monday after a 10-hour session, would allow authorities to compel internet service providers and social media platforms to provide user information. Oh, I see. Okay. That's a little different. So they're saying that the social media platforms and would have to, the social media platforms would have to share user data with the government, and so would the internet service providers. 
also have to share information with the government. Well, guess what? America already does this. India does it too. And this is an example, as predicted many times in the past, that because India took a position like this recently and these social media platforms are complying with India and we know we took note of it in this room, it seems Singapore took note of it too. And I even said, watch, other countries are now going to start doing this. Russia started doing it. Now the headline is that Singapore is going to do it too. And Singapore is going to tell this, the social media tech companies in America, hey, if you want to keep doing business in Singapore, you're going to have to do what we say. And if this little battle, this little standoff, this little, uh, you know, uh, let's get ready to rumble, you know, type of scenario. There's another part to this, this as well. This... Um, sorry, go on, Cheryl. Nah, this is the FICA Act that we mentioned the other day, yes. the Foreign Inference Countermeasure Act. Yes, FICA. Singapore's powerful law and home office affairs minister told lawmakers the Foreign Interference Countermeasures Act Foreign interference. That means other countries playing, trying to fuck up our shit over here in Singapore. I wonder which countries are trying to fuck up shit up in Singapore. And Countermeasures Act was needed to address a quote-unquote serious threat to national security. Oh, who's causing national security threats through the social media in Singapore, Cheryl? It can be from any source. Yes, it could. It can be from could any be. source, yeah. Canada? Heyman, are the Canadians up to no good? Are you guys trying to cause a serious threat to national security? In... I think it's Canada, dude. Those guys are evil. These Canadians, Canadians I tell you. all evil, dude. Like, especially Heyman. So, like pure evil. the minister says uh, that the internet has created a powerful new medium of subversion. Oh, there, so some rogue government is creating a serious national security threat by subversion. I wonder who he's referring to. Hmm. Sweden, perhaps? Maybe Sweden's up to no good? Those Swedes, man. Those Swedes. Johan, man. Jesus. Yeah, Swedbliss? So he didn't name any countries suspected of engaging in such activities. And, and a spokeswoman for the Home Affairs Ministry said the law is an actor agnostic. Uh-huh. They don't want to name names. Gee, I wonder why. Maybe it's somebody they do a lot of trade with, Cheryl? Maybe. No, no, no. I think I think it is really across the border because Sure. Yeah, there are many, many I'm serious because yeah. Singapore is in the in the middle of right. you know, right? Yeah. So Yeah, so we have to yeah, we just it is a it's blanket. It's blanket. So Any the parliament passed the law aimed at countering foreign interference that is potentially so powerful that rights groups and legal experts worry it could crush public debate in a city state where authorities are already frequently accused of curbing civil liberties. The law approved late Monday after a 10 hour session would allow authorities to compel Internet service providers and social media platforms to provide user information, block content and remove applications used to spread content they deem hostile. So this is that red button that I said is coming. So Singapore wants to be able to block any content on demand, right? Because, well, now we know how the subversion is happening. So some state is causing a serious threat of national security by including misinformation inside of the social networks. Well, gee, wally, golly, this is happening in America as well. And Facebook in America says it's coming from China and Russia. So I wonder who's doing it in Singapore. So um, 
Groups and individuals involved in local politics can also be designated politically significant persons, which would require them to disclose foreign funding sources and subject them to other countermeasures to reduce the risk of overseas interference. Legal experts say the law risks capturing legitimate civil activities undertaken by Singaporeans. The move is the latest in a series of legislation that critics say has reduced space for public debate. In 2019, the government targeted fake news with another far-reaching law in a separate incident. A prominent anti-establishment news website went offline in September after its license was suspended. Officials argue that Singapore, a small and open economy, is especially vulnerable to foreign interference. The country is an important U.S. partner in Southeast Asia, but maintains close cultural and economic ties with China. It is currently detaining at least one of its citizens who had admitted to being a Chinese agent without trial under a sweeping security law. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. Gee, I wonder who's doing this. I wonder who's meddling with Singapore politics, a a severe national security threat by subversion through their social media. Gosh, my brain's at a, I'm just struggling here, Chris. We should just do a Jeopardy, Tyler. We should do a Jeopardy. Oh, okay. Let's figure that. Let's, you're right. Let's do it. Who, who could be subverting Singapore to the level that they're calling it a severe national security threat by subverting their, their social media? By sending subversive messages inside of their social media. Hmm. Ellen? Norway? Hmm. Hmm. Lichtenstein. It can be any country. <laughs> It, it, it couldn't, it couldn't even be tech news around the world, by the way, Tyler. Mm. It's Croydon. It's Croydon in the UK, <laughs> all right? We've been found out. Mm. Tyler, what's yes. your question? Messi, who, no, it's which, a, which it's country Tyler has no answer. Is, sub, is causing a serious threat to national security in Singapore by creating powerful new uh, subversion in their social media? Don't let us down, Messi. This is Messi. Like Jordan missing this, a layup. This, this is this is for all the marbles, Messi. Messi, don't point to the trap. He has no answer. He has no answer. There's no answer. Okay, sure. I'm gonna trust yeah. you. Right. <laughs> it's a real it's a real tricky one, this one. Yeah. yeah. Is it China really? I was just watching Facebook. I'm watching CNN. <laughs> it's quite interesting. Funny how they they go on to mention that the country is an important U.S. partner in Southeast Asia, and, and the Vice President uh, uh, Harris was just there to meet with the uh, leader of Singapore, and uh, and then there they just arrested a Chinese spy. Well, that that's interesting. Why would they mention that in this article? That's really weird. That was my guess. (laughs) Singapore's powerful law and home affairs. Yeah, it says the people that you wish is governed in a large uh, deputy director of human rights watch in Asia described FICA as a human rights disaster. Using this law, the government can easily make its critics run the gauntlet of discriminatory restrictions and shut down viewpoints it doesn't like. Once again, Singapore shows just how little faith it has in its democracy democracy by restoring, resorting to political measures better suited to authoritarian regimes that don't trust their people. This obviously is a Western media, right? Is the game still on? I I, I was listening to you on Twitter, Tyler. Uh Uh-huh. I have an answer. Yeah. Can I 
go get points for this. You can get a point for this if you want to. <laughs> oh. Cal, don't point in the trap, Cal. I'm, I'm going to leave in a second, but I'll just give you like, yeah. Is it China? I think it is China, Carl. I'm with you. Well, unfortunately, Cal jumped in before you, so we have to give the point to Cal on this yeah. one. No, Let's but see. I did say China. Those you said no. Points. I did say that. <laughs> You know, Don't my guest came people. from. Um, my guest came. Uh, what, uh, I mean, Tyler. To be fair, what, what in Ethiopia and in most African oh, countries, I, I, uh, we have a lot of uh, IT IT stuff implemented by Chinese, and uh, a lot of governments spy on their population because of that. So. Well, one of the, one of the interesting points is that Singapore was uh, clear to not name who uh, a country and that this this rule applies to everybody <laughs> of course, it applies to everybody yeah i love how they yeah. diplomatically you know, address have, that yeah okay i cannot mention much but you know we have uh yeah okay we have threats ne nearer to home than that yeah okay so uh welcome back cal let me get him and give him the customary the, green bean. the customary green bean for mr cal oh, tell respect. Respect. Uh, he's stuck. Respect. He's stuck. Yes. <laughs> i've heard of that guy yeah okay so i just came in for the point tyler I just yeah this twitter thing is really good you know this uh stream that you well anyway it's yeah. quite good recording no it's it's nice it forces you to listen doesn't it cal and like not feel the urge to yeah 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 to otherwise have to jump in it's really good yeah, you can go in and out you know it's good it's all good when yeah. you're doing other things but <laughs> the sound wave looks cool too right oh you guys are you guys are just so addictive tyler you're yeah. so addictive you swapped apps to get a fake internet point <laughs> yes yes virtual currency <laughs> Uh, oh, you got a green bean. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. Uh, next one up is from Reuters. It says there's a report. Russia's state communications regulator says Facebook took down content considered illegal, but could still face fines for being slow to act. Oh, uh-huh. So for those who don't know, Russia was telling Facebook and YouTube that they need to take down this content or we're going to give some very big fines on you. And they said, yeah, so what? We don't care. And then they said, well, you know those new employees that you hired here because we forced you to hire people physically on the ground? Uh, yeah, here's their actual names. And uh, maybe you can send them little gifts to their family because they might not be seeing their families for a while. And then that's what led Google and Apple to take down the content that the Kremlin was asking them to take down, that they actually named their employees that they were going to go arrest. And that was just a little bit too much for Apple and Google to uh, deal with and not comply with removing this these the app of Putin's main political opponent, who is uh, Alexei Navalny, during the election, which happened about two weeks ago. So first, Russia said, take down this app of our political opponent the day before the election. And Apple and Google said, no, because we believe in democracy. You're going to have an election. You need to have fair votes. And Russia said, yeah, we don't play that here. Take down our political opponent's app now. And Apple and Google said, no, we believe in democracy. And then they said, uh, here's the names of the people that you employed here in Russia that you will never see again. Take down the apps. And then they said, ah, shit. 
now we know why you forced us to hire those people uh, in Russia, which that happened a couple months ago, where they Russia copied India with this clever new strategy of forcing the tech companies to hire people on the ground. And now you know why. <laughs> now you know why. And uh, Apple and Google sure know why now. And yeah. So now the headline from Reuters says, Facebook has complied with Russian demands to delete some content Moscow deems illegal, but it could still face hefty fines as it was slow to do so, uh, citing Russia's state communications regulator. The regulator threatened last week to fine Google up to 10% of its annual Russian revenue, uh, or turnover rather, unless it took down content that Russia has banned. The move to comply could signal that Facebook is responding to Russian pressure. Yep. Big, big. That's why they call him Big Daddy Vladdy over there, and Rush and Marky Mark and his funky bunch are complying uh, to whatever Big Daddy Vladdy says in Russia. So they threatened last week. Oh, ten percent of uh, all turnover. Experts cited by Bedomosky estimate that Facebook's Russian turnover between 165 and 538 million dollars so 10 percent of that would be 16 to 53 million dollars reuters could not immediately verify those figures and the kremlin said that facebook had taken down some banned content from its platform as well as from instagram but that it could still face the fine on turnover because it had not deleted the content quickly enough oh you're double screwed now you complied but they're still going to fine you lovely nice how you play. I like I like how you play over there, Russia. <laughs> Facebook and uh, Russia did not immediately respond to requests for comments, and the Russian official said that Facebook had not taken down all the content Moscow had banned. A total of 1,043 items currently remain undeleted on Facebook and 973 on Instagram. The official was said as saying Russia has already fined Facebook this year for not removing content. The fines, some of which are still being appealed, Total close to 70 million rubles court documents show earlier this year. Russia told Facebook and other social media firms to remove posts containing what it said were calls for minors to participate in anti-government protests after the arrest of jailed Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny. Uh, Russian media have reported that Facebook's violations include failing to remove posts containing child pornography and promoting drug abuse. Okay. Next up, Berlin-based Inkit, a crowdsourced publishing platform, raises $59 million from Axel Springer, which is the biggest media company in Germany, at a $390 million valuation. Next up, experts say automakers use chips with older process nodes, cars, automakers, because they need long lead times for testing, which is at odds with how chip makers prefer to operate. Next up from CNBC, Rent the Runway, which allows uh, whose online marketplace offers subscription fashion rentals, files for an IPO. And uh, so kudos to Rent the Runway. The next one is from VentureBeat. London-based freight forwarding and supply chain finance startup Beacon raises $50 million. And GitLab is looking to raise as much as $624 million in its U.S. IPO at a $9 billion valuation. And do, 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 do. Oh, in a, this is a hot one. In a blow to online streaming services. No, not really. Uh, 
50,000 movie workers. Yeah, I don't know how to say it. People who work in Hollywood at, you know, to all of the carpenters who build the sets and the makeup artists and the costume people. And, you know, when you all those people, crew. At, all the <laughs> all, crew, all the people at the end of the movie, all those names that go flying by when the credits are rolling. Yeah. So all those folks, the ones that are based in America, which is Hollywood, um, have now voted to authorize a strike after the union's demands were not met. So what's going on here? Well, what's going on is really quite interesting. And this has a lot to do with streaming. And that's why the headline even says, in a blow to streaming services. Well, what the hell do streaming services have to do with this? Well, the streaming services are taking over Hollywood because you're giving those streaming services your money. They have your money. Then they go get content for their platforms that you then watch and you pay them more money every month, every month, every month you're giving them money. You used to, before these platforms, give your money to the movie theater once in a while, sporadically, inconsistently. And that money would then go back to the movie studios. And the movie studios would give a percentage to the movie theater for screening the film. So the power player used to be the movie studios. They no longer are. They no longer get the money. The platform does, like Netflix. And they get your money, and then they buy the movie studio, who used to be the power player. And that's why Netflix bought MGM a few months ago. And there's a new king in Hollywood, which are the streaming platforms. Now, the in the old days, when the movie studios were running the show, the movie studios used to negotiate with these uh, workers, the union, who... You know, all of the technician, camera technicians, editors, makeup artists, location managers, all the people in the credits at the end of the movie used to negotiate with the movie studios. And the movie studios used to make movies one after another, after another, after another. And they had to have one after another to keep the engine running because there was no back catalog to monetize. You made money what was in the theater. And when it was out of the theater, you stopped making money from it. And then DVDs came along, and then that added a little bit of a long tail effect. You made money after the theater theatrical release. You get the additional little DVD boost. That's nice. But you still don't have a platform of a catalog of thousands of films like Netflix has. So Netflix has a super weapon in this negotiation with these workers. The movie studios... You had to do whatever the workers said, because if the workers stop, there's no more films. If there's no more films, the business dies. So these workers had a lot of power against the studios in the old model. They don't have that same power with the streaming platforms, because the streaming platforms have huge libraries of content of thousands of films that you can watch. And if there's not a new film this week, you don't give a shit. You're still going to pay your Netflix subscription. Do you see the problem for these workers? It gets worse because... The biggest film in all of Netflix, the new, the, the biggest content in all of Netflix's history is happening right now out of South Korea. It has nothing to do with Hollywood. Hollywood didn't make this content at all. The previous one was Money Heist, which was Spain. So now that Netflix is intentionally, geniusly, creating the content internationally outside of Hollywood, these Hollywood workers are really up shit's creek without a paddle. Because now Netflix is leaning back. Oh, and by the way, so as this vote 
was happening yesterday. The headline says Hollywood crews vote yes on strike authorization, raising the stakes for streaming giants. Well, yesterday there was a headline from Variety, which is the biggest publication in the Hollywood industry, saying the biggest content in the history of content is now this South Korean series on Netflix. What an interesting coincidence that that got announced and happened yesterday as these people were voting to decide to strike. That the the headline from Variety saying, oh, the biggest content of all time has nothing to do with Hollywood and their crews whatsoever. And these streaming platforms don't give a shit about you because they have they're operating in many countries, making content internationally with crews internationally who are not striking. Oh, you're voting to strike today. What an interesting coincidence. So there was a a strike um, that happened a few years, many years ago now. um, That was the writer's strike. 2001. um, Yeah, if you guys remember that one, it killed one of my favorite shows, Pushing Daisies. I loved that show. Um, So I'm still a little resentful. But but this is supposed to be like 10 times more people and more impact than... um, than, than that strike, the writers, uh, and they're expected that, you know, writers are also going to, um, to stop working in honor of the, uh, of the other, of the strike of the crew. And there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm here in LA and the papers and stuff that I read, um, are generally full of things like, you know, there's a, you know, we stand in solidarity and that kind of stuff. I have no idea if SAG um, is going to the, the Screen Actors Guild. And then, you know, the, there's a lot of unions, a ton of unions regarding the entire um, entertainment industry. And um, they do tend to, for the most part, stick together, um, which is one of the things that made that writer strike so difficult. But um, the, the, so this is a problem mostly because we just started filming again post COVID. So everything was so quiet and it was so hard to build back momentum for, for new seasons and new series and things like that. On the other hand, almost everything now is in Vancouver. Most stuff, like most regular shooting stuff is it's all moved to Vancouver. I know a lot of people who work in studios that um, have been asked to either work in Vancouver or take basically contract positions. So they used to employ like animators and lighting people. Um, They used to employ them where between films, you still had a job. You just were waiting for your next project. Now, if you're in the U.S., you're uh, you basically um, are terminated pending a next the next project. So they won't pay you or offer benefits in the lag time in between projects, which is hugely problematic. And I know two people who decided to go ahead and move to Vancouver because, um, you know, it was it, the pay was better and the um, and they will hire you consistently through the year. So a lot of stuff has really left Hollywood. Um, George has taken a huge chunk of it. So is Texas. But for the most part, most of it is just leaving uh, the U.S. It's too expensive. True. Well, and also because of the tax credits, right? Like there are huge tax credits in Vancouver for filming and Georgia as well, which is why so many of these um, studios are moving there. Yeah, in Louisiana as well. I helped set up two film studios in Louisiana in 2005 and six, And we did it with the well, that we had um, infrastructure tax credits, which helped build the studio. And then also we did film tax credits. Louisiana had the second most aggressive tax credits in the country for a while. And we have um, several million square feet of sound stages. But there's quite a bit of activity in in New Orleans and in Louisiana also. I think there's seven movies being filmed here right now and about four or five TV shows. 
So, and that's consistent, but it's IATSE is the union and um, there's 900 members in Louisiana. So it's been a big deal here as well. And uh, for that development, but the big change was last week when SAG, Screen Actors Guild and Writers Guild both voted to go along with IATSE. And, um, but it's a big deal. The one in 2001 was primarily in reaction to reality television when a lot of writers lost their jobs, but this is a much bigger deal. And that's another interesting consequence if there's a massive strike, as did happen in 2001, which is you, you'll get a lot of con- all of these platforms, streaming platforms, will continue to need content. And oh boy, is there a whole shit ton of interesting people on YouTube who are, are, are close to being able to produce content for Netflix. And they're constantly pitching Netflix for content deals. And now they might likely get them, especially if they're producing documentary type type content that doesn't need Hollywood crews. And so yeah, there are also a ton of independent studios and individual people now who can just go out and this is the problem you know, film stuff. And, this is the problem. And, it used to yeah. be that Hollywood had a monopoly on the skills and tools to make Hollywood blockbuster films. And now, the, due to technology, everyone can make, not everybody, but it's really lowered the barrier to make Hollywood-level films. So you can make Hollywood-level productions outside of Hollywood, and that's a real problem for Hollywood. So because and you the, could, And the fact that, I'm sorry, yeah. the fact that like, your iPhone can now film uh, in such a degree that you can like, actually produce content off of just what your iPhone films is, is one of the things. Yeah, the, yeah. Like go ahead, David. The most recent iPhone, uh, like uh, commercials. Yeah. It's all. It's one of them was specifically about creating your own film. Yeah. Yeah, and if you look at, um, if anybody's been in Culver City, um, right by Sepulveda and Sentinella, in um, in that section of town, you know that there's a huge YouTube studios over there, and those YouTube studios, that's what they're doing. They they or have provided studio space for creators, and they're essentially their own studio. Yeah, there's an IMAX test studio out there too. Like that, I used to live right by there. So that area used to be, um, that's Westchester. And that area used to be um, these tiny homes that were all people who yep. worked at LAX. And um, then YouTube, they literally, Fox, they literally moved that whole Google. city to Norwalk. Yeah, it, it was, it's the funniest, it's the craziest thing, right? So then now all of these like tiny bungalows, um, as they're sold, they're getting, they're like getting replaced with like, you know, the, the edge to edge houses that are, you know, it's just a weird mismatch in the neighborhoods now. The McMansions are coming into Westchester. That's where my mom's restaurant is. I'm, I'm at LAX right now as we speak in Westchester. So this is my hometown. Well, it's just very funny because in Westchester, you cannot escape the noise of LAX or the the dirt of it, right? So it's just funny to see these people who are coming in um, who have tons of money but are ending up in areas where, you know, you've got loud um, overhead traffic and things like that. And then they drained the huge swamp that was part of Howard Hughes' um, personal airstrip. And they're building on that swamp land. Apparently, it's full of methane. And, uh, and, uh, you know, no one's really concerned about that. That seems not great for me, but, um, but the other issue is also the record labels, like all of these big industrial complexes, record labels made sense when they actually pressed vinyl or created CDs or, you know, made these cassette tapes. They were the only ones that had all the equipment for recording that was high enough quality. They were the only ones that could distribute the actual physical product. It made sense, economy of scale. 
But now you can do it at your house and then you can distribute digitally. You don't actually need them. So a lot of these big centralized entertainment industries are, you know, disappearing in, in terms of use. They do function still as marketing. So hopefully the strategy of the contract strategy with Pete for people, um, especially like, in, you know, in music, but the, the strategy is going to be mostly like just basically hiring them as a marketing PR end, as opposed to distributor, creator and um, recorder of music. Which they, that's being offered now by. Um, uh, who was it that we were? I, I'm not sure. Annette, your mic is we is really, really quiet. Is that better? Yes. Okay. Um, I was going to say that these are deals now that are being offered um, through uh, alternate means, not just the production companies, right? We were talking about this uh, the other day that the funds are coming up with with cash to produce music for, um, you know, for creators and they're going to be like their publishing companies and their marketing companies. And I'm trying to remember who it was that was talking about this. I'll come back with it. I'm, I'm curious to see if this strike happens and it looks like it will because the um, streaming platforms have replied and said, oh, if you strike, that's going to be catastrophic for you. <laughs> that's literally their response. So hey, Tyler, I yes. see that uh, somebody called Kirsten has just joined. Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Kirsten. You, you, do you guys, work in Hollywood? Yeah, yeah. I do. I'm a union member in Hollywood driving to a big film set right now. And the thing that Tyler hasn't mentioned yet, or I, if, if I missed it, then I apologize, is why these people are striking, though. Go ahead. Has anybody... Yeah, well, I, didn't other... this, I didn't mention it this time. We covered this article when we met previously about nine hours ago, and we did cover it then, but I didn't mention it this time, so feel free. Oh, okay. Just for the people that don't know, they, a lot of it is the conditions on set, um, the hours that people work. I know another animal trainer, so I'm a teamster. I'm 399, a different union than IATSE. I wish I was in IATSE. They get way better uh, hours and benefits than we do over at the Teamsters, but... Um, I mean, we all know people that have died uh, driving home from sets because that I, I know an animal trainer who died. She just veered off the road. We were doing a, a TV series for Animal Planet in the late 90s. And with the hours that we were working were so long, so long. We were just so exhausted. And she just, it's a long, quiet drive home to the ranch to bring the animals back. And she just veered off the road and died. And a lot of these people, when you're done with the set, you're not done. You got to drive the truck back to the lot, unload the truck, then drive to your house. So it's, you know, doing 15, 16 hour days, it, doing it and making that your regular thing, it shatters your nervous system. It can shatter your health. Yep. And I personally think that it's the, um, it's the Gen Z kids who, you know, I don't know how many of those are in this particular room as annoying as they can be. They also have done some like cool stuff with like, you know what, actually, even though this is the status quo, it's not okay. You know, I'm used to all the stuff that they're protesting. And I thought about it. And at first I was like, why are these people complaining? Because the one thing you don't do in Hollywood is complain. <laughs> you don't. No, they'll, I know. Find yeah, yeah. They'll replace me in a hot minute, you guys. Yeah. So the a funny thing is, I personally think, you guys, that this was brought up. It came to be because of COVID. Because let me tell you something interesting. And if anybody in this room has worked film or knows people that professionally work film, they... um 
if you're sick, you were always expected to come to set. My last job that I did before COVID, uh, not the last job, the second to the last job I did, I was shooting an enterprise car campaign uh, with puppies and it with Kristen Bell, the actress Kristen Bell. Kristen was so sick between takes, she had her assistant that she had a throw up bucket and she was throwing up in the bucket. And guess what we all said? Kristen is such a trooper. Can you believe what a hard worker she is? She would never cancel and let people down just because she's sick. Because that's how you worked. Yeah, that's then Hollywood. COVID, yes. Then COVID happened. And now every day, like when I first get there, before I'm allowed to even, like right after I get in my car, I have to go to a COVID check-in table to answer a symptoms checklist. You have to do it every single day. If you have any symptoms, you have to go home. And I'm like, am I supposed to lie? Is this a trick question? <laughs> yeah. Have a gotcha you, moment? You'll get no. fired, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for letting me. Yeah, no, but Kristen, you bring up a great point. I'm glad you jumped up here because and I didn't cover this part, which is critical. People don't know this. The whole ladder of Hollywood, basically the people who run studios, you know, started in the mail rooms, you know, this uh, and there should somebody should make a movie retelling, you know, the whole history of Hollywood in this regard. And it's built on. The people who get to the top are the most vicious, hungry, never say die attitude it's remarkable I, I, illegal things you know your boss tells you to go downtown and buy a bag of cocaine i mean this is just you just do it and if you if you even pause for a half of a second to think about it you don't come tomorrow you're done that's you're yes. done not only are you done on this project you're done in hollywood period go Did home you, see that, you can that you can move back There's... to the farm you came from and goodbye to your dreams in hollywood so there's this huge, the amount of effort and intensity that it happens in the film, in, in the Hollywood process is what Kristen's referring to. And it's, you know, people, the culture has just kind of grinned and bared it until COVID. And now it, and it's a mix of this Gen Z uh, and, and we're seeing it in tech as well. And we're seeing it in other industries where they're coming to work and saying, you know what? Uh, no, I'm not interested in uh, how how you guys do things. You know, we're going to uh, rock the boat. And we're seeing this in, in the tech, the geeky industry, even in Apple and Google and Facebook and whatever. You get these folks who are in Apple. Just to give an example, a, a, a direct a con comparative is saying the CEO, Tim Cook, said, you're going to come back to the office now three days a week, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, and Wednesday and Friday are optional. And in the past, Apple was like Hollywood. You did what Steve Jobs said, period. Or you go home and you're done with your tech dreams, bye-bye. Now you've got team members pushing back, doing a signature collection, which is essentially like a union, saying, actually, Tim Cook, CEO, uh, no, that ain't good enough. We're going to work. We're going to stay at home. Thank you. And this is like, er, what? What the hell's going on over there in Apple land? This is truly unprecedented. And the same scenario in different but similar ways is happening in Hollywood to this point. Yeah, and this actually, this problem is exactly what the music NFTs are designed to solve, is basically figuring out how to do mass distribution without having to go through the you know web of pay to play and the studios that take a huge percentage for you know all the work that you do it's it's actually a 
it's a whole long story of how of what people are doing and how it's evolving, but it's really interesting. It's basically an end run. And one of the few places where people who aren't signed and independent are have a huge advantage over those that are signed. So um, it's, it's very interesting there. I don't know if you saw this, uh, this, um, this movie, I think it's called The Assistant. Like nobody saw it except for people who are in the industry. Um, and that's actually how I found out about it. Someone said this movie is so good. Now I'm not actually in the industry at all. Like I have clients who are, but I'm not, you know, I'm not in there. So I didn't get a lot of the references. And so I had to actually, um, I thought it was just appalling. It's about this assistant to somebody who's apparently supposed to be Harvey Weinstein. And she's like, it's just one day in her life. And it's basically like, you know, massive sexual harassment. And then she's like getting drugs and organizing them for him and beautiful, like arrays or whatever. And then people come in, these like young girls come in and he's basically having sex with them and she has to clean the sofa afterwards. And it's all this horrible, horrible stuff. And I was like, this is a horrible movie. I, this just is like disgusting. What is this? And apparently everyone was like, oh yeah, yeah, that happened. Oh, I did that. That happened too. Oh yeah. I mean, th like, you know, the assistant has to cover PAs, for we call them. Yeah. Production assistant. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's appalling that, I mean, any of that stuff that happened, if it happened in any other industry, this is called, it would be like, but this is, this is well, well known as paying your dues in Hollywood. I mean, it starts in the mailroom at the agencies and then you become a production assistant and there's a, there's a ladder. You literally climb the ladder of Hollywood, like a game. And the whole game is, as kind of political. You almost become a politician, and it gets very crazy. And it's who can? It's almost like a game show, like uh, Fear Factor. Like, like it, it's not always sinister, though. Like a lot of the, I know that what gets the attention is like the salacious, like you know, sex stories and stuff, which of course does happen. But like a lot of what the Ayatsi people are protesting, it's the. I'll just give you a quick, a very, very quick example, and I'll name a name that everybody is familiar with. About ten years ago, I did a music video for Katy Perry, the artist. It's the Roar video. I did all the animal work on that, right? When I went into, the, when I was negotiating uh, the work for the video, they asked if all the trainers, because I had eight trainers working for me on it, can the trainers go on a flat rate? Absolutely not. The trainers cannot go on a flat rate. Pushed and pushed and pushed, and I said, no, we don't go on a flat. Everybody's on a flat except for you guys. I'm like, well, that's on them. We do not work on flat rates. Period. Because we work three extra hours ever after we leave the set, you know, looking after the animals. Right. So cut to the day of. We are in major overtime. The whole crew, we didn't get there until close to the first uh, scene with the animals. The whole other rest of the crew had already been there, you know, many, many hours before us, five hours before we arrived. And so at this point, we're in a 15-hour day. Katy Perry's late for getting out of her trailer. And I finally asked, because my friend, uh, I was worked with this UPM quite frequently to the point where we were, we were rather chummy. Like, why is she always in her trailer? Like, she's wearing the same thing. She's meditating before each take. She wants to get her head straight. This crew, these art department ah, people. And now you know they why they wanted flat rate. <laughs> there you go. And so they're working on a flat rate that they were pushed and pushed and pushed into taking. Here you have a big star. She was already a huge star, making a lot of money when she uh, made Roar. And she's meditating while everybody else is now working for nothing. Well, she's got to meditate. But now you know why they were pushing so hard, because they knew she was going to meditate and take you into deep end of overtime. Honey, we all got golden time on that. <laughs> Good for you. This, this my first rodeo. Good for you. <laughs> Tyler, that was Twitter, right? That uh, With the that music initiative. 
Well, say again. Sorry for jumping in. No, Where I love. Was... I love. I love. Well, I just the. Uh, I guess golden time applies to retail industry as well. Like when you go deep into extra over how many hours is it in Hollywood when you call it golden time? Yeah. So uh, time and a half up to twelve hours. So it's eight hours of straight time. Time and a half up to twelve hours. After twelve hours, you're at double rate. After 16 hours, you can technically charge whatever you want. You can say my rate's $500 an hour. You can charge what your lawyer charges if you want. Um, and, you know, that's unless you've been foolish enough to go on a flat. And that's a per day rate. Yeah, come the next day, well, the clock starts at zero again, yeah. But unless no, you meaning like it's not, you don't hit, you don't have to hit like 40 hours in a week before you get that overtime. No, it could be on the first day, yeah. Correct, yeah, correct. But that's if you didn't get pushed or bullied right. or pressured to working on a flat. Yeah, at that point you're just you're you're like, hey, sweetheart, take this, go ahead deep into that meditation. Take a couple extra deep breaths for me because I'm making <laughs> five hundred an hour. Go ahead. And, <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yeah, keep going. You totally, go. But I still have passion for all the other people because when when that was happening, that's when I was like, that's why these mothers wanted me to, you know what I mean? And I was like, but. And all of my guys were like, fine, we'll stay as long as needed because they felt like they were being compensated properly. Meanwhile, all those IOTSI guys, you know, so they their strike is, I think, warranted. And it does feel bad whenever the studios are like, well, we're making money on the back end now. You're just replaceable. And because it's not like they make incredible money anyway. Most of these people live in a very blue collar, middle class neighborhood, right. you know. Yeah, Culver City, traditionally. And then over... Yeah. yeah. In the valley too. Yep. And well, they, uh, yeah, later in later Hollywood era. Yeah. Everyone moved to the valley. Uh, uh, I, I would probably re recommend everyone see a film called Swimming with the Sharks. It's from like 1994, I think. Okay. But it, it's basically a, a it's, it's a count of what it is to work as an assistant for one of these studio executives. And it isn't, uh, it isn't sexualized. It isn't, a uh, a female assistant's a male assistant who just basically can't take it anymore, and he, be, and he be, you know, he, and he loses his mind. Um, but you know, it's it still shows the the you know the brutal hours and all yeah. that other stuff. I mean, it's almost, yeah. I mean, if you live in LA for any amount of time, you end up meeting friends who are PAs, you know, and they are fun to vent with, you know, on the weekends at a barbecue. My God, they have incredible stories. So, um, yeah, it's brutal. And people are have had enough, and um, I appreciate all the cultural context, and it's, I take it for granted because I was lived in it for so long that it didn't occur to me to share it. So, um, anywho, back to the headlines. And the first one here is from Katarina uh, from Neuroscience News: the first neuroscience evidence of team flow as a unique brain state. So they're. It's they've here. Here it is. Researchers have identified the neural correlate correlates of team flow, a state where members of a team get into the zone to accomplish a task. The finding can be used as a tool to predict and enhance team performance from Toyohashi University of Technology. A research team led by associate professor Mohammed Shahada at Toyohashi University of Technology in cooperation with researchers at the California Institute of Technology and Tohoku University have found the brain waves and regions sensitive to team flow compared to non-engaging team flow or solo flow. This study is the world's first attempt to study this psychological state objectively. The neural correlates not only can be used to understand and predict the team flow experience, 
The authors are working on utilizing the findings to monitor and predict team performance. Team flow is experienced when team players get in the zone to accomplish a task together. Great teams experience this psychological phenomena from sports to music bands and even professional work teams. When teamwork reaches the team flow level, one can observe the team perform in harmony, breaking their Thank performance you. limits. Hi, Tyler. Yes. Um, breaking news. Yes. Um, uh, so there is a suspicious vehicle in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh oh. And that, uh, yeah. So they arrested the suspect, a white man, and and just police took him under control and put him in a car and taking him out just happened on CNN. Okay. In front of the which building? Supreme Court. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and it's a suspicious vehicle and stuff and we, there was a one driver in it and then they were suspecting whatever it was and then they uh, looked around and apparently they took uh, that one man under control. I got and, it. Uh, they don't know what it is. They got him. They put him in a police car yep. right now as we speak. And uh, it's just a suspicious vehicle. They don't know yes. what it is. It I've was got... just right in front of the Supreme Court. The man is in custody. Everyone is safe, police said. U.S. Capitol Police said they extracted a man from a suspicious vehicle in front of the U.S. Supreme Court where the nine justices were hearing oral, oral arguments. the well, I, I guess it's related to the case that they're hearing. The department reported the investigation on Twitter and later added that an officer had extracted the driver from a sports utility vehicle and arrested him. The nine justices began their new term on Monday with their first oral arguments in person in 19 months due to COVID pandemic. Law enforcement authorities have been on high alert in the U.S. Capitol since a deadly January 6th riot. In August, a man claimed to have a bomb in a pickup truck near the U.S. Capitol surrendered to police after a standoff that paralyzed a swath of Washington for more than five hours. And I guess we're going to wait to see what the possible motives of this uh, very disturbed individual might be. And, and if anyone finds the answer to that, do, ju do jump in and let us know. Preparing to uh, hold on here. Capitol Police said its officers were preparing to disrupt the vehicle. Yeah, they just pulled them out, and there's no description yet of the individual or what their motives might be. But hopefully, we we get a sense of what uh, is troubling this this individual. Okay, so thank you for the interruption, Messi. Back to the Team Flow article where it says it's essential to reproduce this Team Flow state in a lab and objectively measure it to investigate neural processing of team flow state, which has been an enormous hurdle for decades. Researchers at the Electronics-Inspired Interdisciplinary Research Institute at Toyohashi University of Technology and, and California Institute of Technology found ways to break such hurdles and provide first neuroscience evidence of team flow. The researchers measured the brain activity from 10 teams using EEGs of teams of two while they played a music video game together. In some trials, a partition separated the teammates so they couldn't see each other while they played, allowing a solo flow state but preventing team flow. The research teams scrambled the music in their trials, which prevented a flow state but still allowed teamwork. The participants answered questions after each game to assess their level of flow. Moreover, moreover the researchers invented an objective neural method to evaluate the depth of the team flow experience, then 
the researchers compared the brain activity of the participants during each condition. They found a unique signature of team flow, increased beta and gamma brain waves in the middle temporal cortex, a type of brain activity linked to information processing. Teammates also had more synchronized brain activity during the team flow state compared to the regular teamwork state. The study will provide a framework based on neural modes that can be utilized towards more effective team building strategies in areas where human performance and pleasure matters, like business, sports, music, performing, arts, video games, and entertainment. In partnership with government and industrial institutions, the researchers plan to utilize the neural signature of the team flow to monitor enhanced team performance, perhaps build more effective teams. Enhancing performance while maintaining enjoyment has many implications towards a better quality of life, including lowering the rates of depression, panic attacks, and anxiety. Interesting. Oh, sorry, I didn't tweet that out. There it goes. Thank you for that one, Katerina. That's brilliant. And it relates to an important other headline that we covered when we met eight hours ago, which is um, UC... San Francisco, University of California, San Francisco, has found a way to um, the the part of the brain responsible for heat and sensation of heat and cold and pressure and pain. And and the the individual just won the Nobel Prize. The two of the the two individuals, as I recall, and the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine. And the idea is. That, um, and it was, I believe this is the same team from UCSF that we read the headlines about two months ago, where they had somebody in their lab that could control a robotic arm with their thoughts and pick up a glass with their thoughts through a robotic arm because the robotic arm had sensors on the fingertips that relayed the response back to the brain to tell it the right amount of pressure to apply to the glass. So that obviously involves the part of the brain that's responsible for pressure, which is what the person won the Nobel Prize for. So, uh, but now I, we didn't realize in that article, it didn't talk about the the sensation of heat and touch. And, um, and this, I, and there, by the way, there was another article today that uh, what they called a pacemaker for stopping depression, which was some device that sent an electrical signal into the brain at the correct area to stop somebody's depressive depressive thoughts. And it was incur- what was considered incurable depression. An untreatable depression was became treatable with electrostimulation to the correct part of the brain. And it would disrupt the, the depressive thoughts. And what's getting very interesting here is we're seeing headlines where people are getting more accurate at at mapping the brain. And as we continue to map the brain, and you better believe there's a, such incredible uh, impetus and momentum and to do this, and my goodness, if we start applying um, machine learning and heaven forbid quantum computers come online that can do this because oh my God, uh, that blows my mind to think, you know, how you could utilize quantum computers to map the brain. But um, boy, the world's going to change in ways that we can't begin to imagine. I mean, it, just as an example, the if we do map out we this this Nobel Prize for mapping out pressure and pain, pressure is the sense of touch, right? 
And if we know where the sense of touch is in the brain, we no longer need to wear a, a VR suit to feel rain in VR. Because we that was a headline last week. Somebody built a, a VR suit so when you're in VR, you could feel rain, for example. Or you could feel somebody touch you, for example. But now you won't need the suit. We just jack right into your nut, wet noodle. And we, then you can feel sensation. We could feel touch. Now, you have other senses as well, like smell. So what if we find the part of the brain responsible to smell and you go in VR, bada boom, bada bing, someone bakes a cake in VR and you can smell the goddamn thing. So how far away are we from mapping out the other senses like smell and touch? Oh, and by the way, I wonder if this sense of touch will be useful in VR porn. You can see how crazy this gets very quickly. And by the way, VR is imagined to be a goggle device that you put over your eyes because we have not figured out the uh, visual cortex part of the brain. But as soon as we do, we no longer need the goggle on your goddamn eyes because then we jack right into the visual part of your brain. And then you're just steps away from the matrix, as our friend Keanu Reeves and the red pill and the blue pill. This could happen in our lifetime. That's what's so crazy about this. Well, Tyler, I recall you reading out um, several weeks ago the Mercedes-Benz concept car where they are proposing using uh, BCI for certain functionalities as a concept. And so uh, it's getting quite mainstream in terms of the vision. Yeah. And then and we're making continual inroads in terms of the execution. So it's it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, that's that's my point is now you're going to get because Elon's doing Neuralink, investors are going to start throwing money into these areas because these are monetizable areas. You could you could get some amazing patents. You could get some amazing intellectual property. You could build some amazing products and services with this stuff as we're on the brink of, you know, the metaverse and holy cow smell in the metaverse touch in the metaverse VR porn with touch. Uh, You think that the the birth rates are in decline now? Wait until you've got VR porn with touch. We don't, we don't need smell though in the VR porn. So I was going to say that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, for, for me, I would actually, I would be. I would... You would, you would like smell and just... yeah. Go ahead, Carl. No, not just smell, but just uh, enhanced sensors. You can augment sensors, right? I can't see ultraviolet light. I'd quite like to see ultraviolet light. Like a lot of insects and animals and birds and trees and everything else look completely different in that in that wavelength of light that I can't see in. It would be really nice to be able to augment my vision. So instead of looking in virtual reality, I could have the comfort of knowing that I was looking. I was looking at reality, yeah. but I was then able to look at it in a way that I've never seen it before and smell, you know, the, you know, <laughs> smell the smells that um, I've never been able to smell before at distances and see at distances I've never been able to see before. So we always talk about these sort of UBIs. Um, oh, you could have dog-like UBIs smell. And, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We used to, uh, sorry, the, the um, BCIs, we always talk about them as replacing reality, but it can just as easily, if we do Enhanced. it, it can augment and enhance reality. So instead of taking us away from the real world, it actually enables us to see it clearer and, and connect with it more. Beyond um, our traditional senses, yeah. What I find remarkable is that I don't know if people remember when uh, Second Life came out, and that was revolutionary. And now um, 
arguably we are living second life. 2003 was second life. Oh my goodness, you have an encyclopedic memory. <laughs> but now look at us. Um, I don't know if the creators of Second Life could have imagined that here we are in this 2D app um, conversing. And then next, of course, we'll be uh, in three-dimensional and hopefully in hologram. Alrighty, but I love this uh, neuroscience evidence of team flow, which we've all, everyone has experienced, especially if you ever played in a band before. You, that's the whole point of a of a good performance between musicians. Um, and anyone who's especially jazz knows exactly what this is all about. Um, yeah, it's a yeah, Miles, Miles, Miles Davis famously said that. Uh, you know, jazz is not so much a form of music as as it is a form of communication, um, and and I think what's fascinating about the the linkage between the team flow neuroscience and the metaverse is that you can easily imagine um, how you could assess team flow capacity within the metaverse as part of an interview process for someone joining a team. I mean, it's not that far-fetched. Yeah, I, I love the idea that they, just like they stopped the depressive thoughts in the in that article earlier today, that they could enhance team flow somehow um, once we get a better grasp of, you know, um, the kind of neural topology and figure the whole wet noodle out, like, being able to reduce depression all the time, uh, being able to enhance happiness in a way that hopefully doesn't tax your physiology and, and, and hormones. And this could be very interesting if we start manipulating our optimizing our existence physiologically, you know, through the brain. Wild. Oh, Tyler, yeah. I, I really love how you connect the dots um, especially when you had mentioned, well, we won't need a haptic suit anymore. Um, and it, uh, the convergence of these innovative technologies is truly exciting. And um, I think that you have a really firm grasp in terms of where we're going because you have been tracking and reading current headlines um, and on top of it with your industry events. So um, I think what's really obvious to you may not be obvious to others. So um, hats off to you, Tyler. Yeah, well, we, to... we we got everyone in here finding all these amazing articles that we share with each other. It's a, that's what makes the magic work here. So, And Tyler, yeah. just, just the haptic stuff's been around since Atari's hard driving too. So I would just kind of add a little comma on there or something just to kind of state that games often have influenced or led tech on a lot of these human interface technologies. So for anybody making investments or trying to really try to peer a little bit in the future, the games industry is a great place to kind of to, to look into as well. So thanks. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, if I can mention yeah, go ahead. two things. But one was uh, there was a company, Haptic Technologies, and it was interesting because just like David said, um, I met him probably – at, uh, I think it was at Seagraph probably 15 years ago. And um, they were licensing some of their haptic technologies to the military for like uh, uh, haptic feedback for um, fighter pilots in the, in the, the, you know, when they were, they'd get a sense of touch, but then also they were licensing to the game industry then as well. And um, 
when Cammy mentioned about um, Second Life, about two years ago, I was in a meeting with Philip Rosedale, the founder of Second Life. And actually, before I had ever heard of Clubhouse, he the, the first social audio app or pro- platform that I ever ever heard of was his. He came out with one a few years ago called High Fidelity. And he was very early into the social audio environment. He was looking more for social event type, uh, uh, more of a Second Life type experience. But but he's in this space as well with social social audio. But uh, Philip Rosedale's the founder. Want to throw that in? Mm-hmm. Hey, real quick, I heard someone. Hey, Tyler, this is Robert. Hey, Robert. Good morning. I, Welcome back. Hey, I heard someone talk about uh, gaming. Well, I have a friend named Dusty Storm, and that is his childhood name. And he started in IT security. But he says the best place to uh, to find leading technology is porn, and that is what he has been a part of forever on the tech security side. And he says from the CIA to you name it, every major event, they go to the porn places because those guys know how to protect the identities of their client base. Yeah. Great place to invest if you can. Yep. A lot that's of... because they have the most amount of users. And lots of cash. So, so for guys, Ashley Facebook, Madison, right? Sorry, Facebook update, if anybody wants. Yes. So it's kind of wrapped up, and all the channels are reporting that Facebook whistleblower offers damning testimony. So basically, two highlights that everyone's talking about is that uh, she has information and reports that say that shows that Facebook executives, including Mark Zuckerberg, knows that engagement-based ranking content, that is uh, content that is controversial, gets more clicks and more comments, and therefore creates greater engagement. They have that data, they've experimented on it, and they are purposely uh, blowing that kind of uh, data up, even though that might be misinformation because it creates greater engagement. So she says she's got documents that show that Facebook is aware of it and uh, decided not to do anything about it because it creates more users. I was I, I was actually um, not here and listening to the testimony. <clears throat> and my sense is that if um, that the uh, 60 minutes interview was just a preview and it didn't seem to have the impact that I thought it would, this, the testimony today before Congress is a bombshell. Um, and it also was interesting. I've never seen, I can't recall recently ever having seen such cooperation among Republicans and Democrats. You know, they were really buddy-buddy in terms of this. So they're on the way, same wavelength. And, you know, they cited the fact that, they, uh, that there was a lot of lobbying uh, that the lobbyists were going to be swarming, but I think that because they were um, smart in focusing on on the kids' angle and not the political issue uh, in the U.S., the, the January 6th incident, that they started with something that they can all agree on, but it could expand, and, and they're talking about making reforms to, what is it, Section 230? Mm-hmm. Um, passing legislation. And the other interesting point is that um, Francis Hogan uh, made the suggestion that there needs to be a regulatory body of someone like me 
um, who knows the basically the the companies and the technical knowledge has the technical knowledge to be able to uh, look through all these different issues. In other words, she's almost suggesting a division within the federal government uh, where you would have expertise uh, on the level that she has. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was very, very compelling, um, very compelling. And to sort of connect it to what you were just discussing about the brain interface. And I find that really fascinating. We're going to learn more about uh, about the brain. And as we do, we're also going well, that device of, of lowering depression is just sort of like a first step. We're just starting on that. Imagine, you know, 50 years from now, where we'll be. And so what the testimony today indicates is that algorithms, and by the way, she beat up, beat up on, on AI as a, as a method of being able to screen for anything. And that basically it's a black box and you wash your hands and it's AI. So what that, what she's saying basically is there are uh, ways of, of manipulating people through the algorithms uh, that Mark Zuckerberg basically has responsibility for. Uh, she pointed out that he has a very unique power in a tech company and that he basically controls it with 55% of the shares. And therefore, the, con the, the connection between these two issues is that if the algorithms can control our behavior, because she used the term clicky, twitchy, twitchy, that's what she said, that they like the engagement that's more twitchy. Sticky. It's, it's sticky. Yeah, but she actually said twitchy which means you're sort of like compelled to, to, to hit on that. And she says, it's not so much that's going to benefit you when, when you give the like and somehow engage with it, but it, it, what it does, it gives dopamine to the person who's a creator and that dopamine incentivizes that person to create more stuff. And so they find that what's most extreme is most engaging and what's most engaging is what they most want because they want those eyeballs sticking to uh, the feeds. Um, and so it's, it's, she went to a lot of issues. And one thing that it highlights is, uh, first of all, the senators seem to be much more knowledge. They didn't ask any stupid questions like, you know, how does the classic how does Facebook make its money? They seem pretty aware of what they were talking about, but also she was brought a level of technical knowledge to the issue uh, that was very, very high. And when she didn't know what the area that, sh that she, they asked her questions about, she would say, well, that's not the area that, you know, that I work in. So she didn't try to sort of speculate and it was very compelling. And so, um, the bottom line is that um, on this issue, uh, you, you're probably going to see a lot of changes unless uh, Facebook can overwhelm uh, Congress with, with the lobbyists. The changes need Maurice, to come from I... the, news are, uh, the news outlets first, though, like first and foremost, because that's they're doing that as well. Yeah, this yeah, is not yeah, an yeah, issue yeah, about yeah. the news. So, Sorry, so yeah. they, they, yeah. no, go ahead. 
Yeah, sorry. And, and the thing that she started with and she ended with as well, she said, I'm not trying to bring down Facebook. I'm trying to save Facebook. And she kind of said, talked about, you know, that it helps lots of businesses and all of that, right? And, and Facebook will not do anything on its own unless it's forced to. So. That's right. That's right. She said yesterday, I don't know what brought it down, but we had a preview of not pushing hate speech and ethnic cleansing and all the bad things she said. But you also missed that opportunity of seeing those new baby pictures and that engagement and for the business that depend on Facebook. So basically her, what she is saying, um, if, if we're to believe her is, I believe in Facebook, I believe in social media, I believe that it's a good thing, but if you do it in this way, it's disrupt, it undermines, it, it's not necessary uh, because you can maybe, you know, the issue is you make a little bit less profit, but at least you keep uh, the society in a more stable mode, which is good for everybody. The, the one, another, another uh, illumination was the, the line. So the way that Congress is looking to, uh, to, to kind of manage this is, to the, the fine line between the First Amendment, somebody had mentioned news, the news outlets. So the content users, you know, they, they're, they're going to be able to publish what they want on there. But the, the question with regards to uh, accountability on the algorithm is the kind of fine line that they're going to be exploring how to, uh, to perhaps relook at the legislation that was passed in 96, was it the 203 or 230, to kind of put a little more delineation on that. But the uh, the ethics of the algorithm is is what they're going to be uh, you know touching on that and the, the legal means to kind of push that accountability back on those that are running these social not just networks but that would be you know anybody using AI or, or you know that's that's the, the the theory at the moment is how do we to how do we find a means to to have some level of protective measure on on them as they deploy it and uh, provide more safety to, to users. So the real test will be today, actually. They said right after this, we've got, they've got a herd of lobbyists that are going to come in and meet with us. And these senators were up there saying, we've, we've written these bills, right, to address this, 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 and this. You know, and, and they've, they, they, like, like the, one of the speakers just said, they, they gave, or Maurice, that they gave a very good, detailed discussion around this. They were very informed as senators. They were prepped very well. And she did address things that could be could, you know, really help the problem. One thing was uh, reposting some a link that you haven't opened. And they said Twitter stopped that and it helped tremendously. Facebook refuses to, to put that, you know, that requirement in. But the, but when they said that the lobbyists are literally coming in right on the heels of this and they're going to beat up all these senators and remind them of how much cash. Facebook has given them and do what they do behind the, you know, behind the doors. And it'll be interesting to see if anything, you know, again, comes out of this. Um, Her testimony was so punishing. Facebook stock is is up (laughs) 2.4%. Yeah. So So they'll, they'll, they'll do some stuff. They'll make some token noises and they'll say, you know, we're, we're passing this guideline or something to that effect. But John, to your point, uh, the Facebook lobbying money, if you guys Google how much Facebook spends on lobbying from 2018 onwards, I mean, I wish the stock price was going up at, at, at the percentage growth that they're spending on lobbying. Right? Tyler, well, what you said, 
yesterday about Facebook. CNN is showing it live now. Ha. Goes to like... show what tech news, advanced news does. Well, uh, this is Robert. I just hope that uh, everybody talks about, not all of us, but talks about breaking up big tech and everything like that. I wish that on the front end, the FTC, FCC, all these guys got together and said no on some of these things versus getting upset with these companies after they get a certain size and say, oops, we, you need to break up. So hopefully this provides some level of guidance or for Congress and the agencies to know when to say yes and when to say no, because there's some things they said no on in traditional retail that's crazy, but they say yes when it comes to mergers and acquisitions. I'm done. That's because our antitrust laws were not written for social media. They're written for more traditional, older businesses where you can more clearly define you know, what the industry is. It's very important to define what industry you're talking about to understand whether you're dealing with antitrust. And because a lot of these social media companies are involved in different things, I mean, if, if, uh, if, if messaging is a different business than, you know, uh, the things that they do with in terms of, uh, you know, recycling the news, um, that's a different business then they're viewed as different businesses from an antitrust standpoint. So, I mean, that, that's, that's, it's, that's, that is one of the biggest issues with all of these companies is defining what the industry is. Okay. So here we go through some more headlines here. Dr. Fran sends in one from Digiday. Why Snapchat is leveraging augmented reality technology to get a leg up on social commerce in recent years. The social commerce space has gained momentum with shoppable virtual try-on technology. And oh, wh why Snapchat is leveraging augmented reality technology to get a leg up on the social commerce arms race? Well, go, hey, Digiday, glad to see you. Um, understand where the where it's all headed because a lot of tech media hasn't still not figured it out. So Snapchat's iconic special effects filters or lenses, as the company calls them, aren't just for dog ear or flower crown selfies anymore. As the social media commerce race heats up, the platform is asking advertisers to bet on its virtual reality technology to drive sales. So far, brands like Puma and Dior have, and others like direct-to-consumer Intimates uh, brand CUUP say they plan to move more ad dollars to the app because of the offering. In recent years, the social commerce space has gained momentum with both Amazon and Pinterest launching similar shoppable virtual try-on technology this May. Snapchat's partner at Snapchat's partner summit, the social media platform introduced a slew of new AR try-on experiences that mimic in-person shopping. For example, DTC skincare brand Tula launched an AR lens to promote an under-eye cream. Users could see themselves in the ad as it simulated the cream's application and revealed what they would look like after using the product. We're just getting started on taking all these things people love about in-store shopping and replicating them through augmented reality, says the head of Emergent Commerce at Snapchat, adding that the social nature... Uh, where users can try on, shop, and share with friends, differentiates Snapchat's offering. The camera will be meaningful to the shopping experience, not only when people are on the go with their phones, but also when they are actually in stores. Since the launch, advertisers have shown an interest in Snapchat's technology as a way to scale and tap into the platform's Gen Z audience. Last week, 
one of the largest agency holding groups, WPP, announced an inaugural partnership with Snapchat to help WPP clients leverage Snap's augmented reality capabilities. Apparel brands like Puma, Dior, Hoka Sneakers have already launched ad campaigns in which Snapchat users could virtually try on products. Moving forward, Snapchat's team uh, is vying for more ad dollars, plans to build on that momentum, scaling AR capabilities to more DTC and small businesses. In May, Snapchat launched a creator marketplace so brands interested in AR advertising can find the right resources. The platform is also touting creator marketplace studios that use machine learning to bring additional try-on capabilities into the advertiser's campaign. And then it says uh, Snap is not the only one, that all, all the others are doing it too. That's why they're calling it an arms race. And they talk about TikTok and Instagram. <clears throat> and here it comes, social commerce and AR, social AR commerce. Thank you for that. That's a brilliant one from Dr. Fran. And then the next one is from our friend Faraz, uh, that Burger King launches Keep It Real Meals NFT campaigns. Burger King has announced the launch of a new NFT campaign in collaboration with NFT Marketplace called Sweet. And now it really is starting to feel like the 2007 era where every brand on the planet was launching Twitter and Facebook accounts, and now they're all launching NFTs. So Subway, when is our beloved honey oat wheat tuna foot long NFT launching? Could you please just drop me in my DMs and let me know when I can buy the foot long tuna honey oat wheat? My NFT, NFT, NFT coupon. Yeah. Yeah. Have you still not managed to get that sponsorship? They're a tough, they're a tough, they're a tough cookie to crack. Uh, and when I say they're a tough cookie, I'm not referring to the chocolate, the stale chocolate chip cookies at the cash register. How dare you talk about I think about you mean cake, Tyler. I think you mean cake if you're in Europe. So the next one's from Am, uh, Faraz. It's about Amazon. Amazon and Google set to attend White House Forum on Quantum Technology. Boeing, Honeywell, Inter IBM... Intel, North, Northrop Grunman are also expected to attend. Line up the generals for the Cold War. Um, and they're meeting to deal with the Chinese threat of quantum computing. Amazon, Google are expected to join Biden administration on Tuesday. That's today, focused on quantum technologies as the U.S. government works to head off hacking threats and corner a burgeoning growth industry. The White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy is hosting the event that will discuss critical applications of quantum computing, which is expected to operate millions of times faster than today's advanced supercomputers. Boeing, Honeywell, IBM, Intel, and Northrop Grunman are also expected to attend. There's a lot of excitement about quantum computers and quantum sensors, and there's some hype associated with that, says the Assistant Director for Quantum Computer. Uh, but what we really want to get down to, what are the applications that a future quantum computer can run that could really benefit our society? The technology, which is based on core principles of, of physics, is still in its infancy, but has become a darling of investors aspiring to revolutionize healthcare finance, our AI, weather forecasting, and other areas. President Joe Biden's administration is especially focused on the national security implications of quantum technology, which promises the ability to easily crack encryption standards in use today. China, which Washington regards as its chief rival abroad, 
has also made significant efforts to develop the technology. The Biden administration is also hoping to encourage more students to enter the field and to increase cybersecurity around private research and development to prevent snooping. Congress has already funneled hundreds of millions of dollars into the industry, including quantum research laboratories and bills currently under consideration now can add billions more. Okay, thank you for that one. And Cheryl sends in an interesting one from Japan, Kyoto News, which says that over 400 million cyber attacks were attempted at the Tokyo Games. The Tokyo Olympics saw around 450 million cyber attacks when they were held this summer. But disruptors to the games were avoided as the attempts were blocked each time, organizers said. It would be interesting to see what the credentials to to serve as a, a benchmark for, for a cyber attack. Yeah. Was it the port scan or something like that? Because yeah. that is, that is I was a gonna lot ask that. more than I, can, uh, I have seen even in the largest global networks that I've been monitoring these yeah. things in. Yeah, it does. this is like when in the this is like in the office when uh, Daryl was interviewing for the job and he's like, I shipped two billion units of, of product. And Joe's like, what are you talking about? He's like paper products, <laughs> you know, because that's what Johan's saying. It's like 400 million intrusion attempts. Those got to be individual scans that are getting added up. Like that's not, uh, you know, that's, that's beyond the scale of anything I've ever seen. So what are they trying to achieve? Um, by doing this cyber attack? Denial of service, for one. We don't know, because they weren't successful. That's just weird. Well, we don't know about the successful ones. That, well, that too, yeah. Um, so the next one is an interesting one that we touched on uh, well, last time we met, about a company that routes billions of tech messages, basically the company between all of the world's leading telecommunications companies, meaning Verizon, AT&T, what have you, 3, Orange, you know, um, all of these major telecom companies are work together with one big company called Cineverse. And Cineverse revealed today that Cineverse handles billions of text messages a year, including your private SMS security codes that you get when you log into your apps, they handle those as well. And hackers have had unauthorized access to their system for years. So much for those private text messages. So much for your private anything, because they have access to your codes to log into your apps. And not just you, which no offense, your emails are not that interesting. They have access to the admins of those apps. So they get to see everything everybody's doing in all the apps. This is the holy grail of, of cybersecurity hacks. And they've been hacked just for a few years. I mean, just since, you know, I don't know, since Obama. I love how they, I love how they say they were quiet. They quietly announced. Like, what yes. Does that mean? <laughs> yeah, they, well, yeah, they waited. They waited until Facebook went down to announce it. 2016, where they breached. Jesus, five years. So yeah, since Obama, they, they have to. Can they, we blame him? <laughs> they, thanks, Obama. Thanks, Obama. So 
I wonder if they did wait for something massive like the whole Facebook outage to quietly announce this so no one could share it virally on Facebook. May, oh, by the way, maybe now we hang on a second. Hold on. Hold the phone, Tyrone. Maybe we figured it out. Maybe these... they blew up Facebook to actually shadow away this little minusculous attempt to share our data. You can't really make a viral story if Facebook and and uh, Instagram and these other ones are down. That very genius on their part. These hackers are now we have a road. Now we have a roadmap. If any nation states want to shut down any of those services, they know they can just go to the border routers. This is better than Pegasus. This is like yeah, it it is better than Pegasus. YouTube Music will launch free background listening starting in Canada on November third. YouTube Music's lifting one of the most annoying limitations, but only in Canada. Today, YouTube announced the beginning. That beginning November 3rd, customers in Canada will be able to continue listening to their music in the background while doing other tasks on their phones or when the screen is off. Why would they do that? To compete with Spotify. And trying to train users to know that you can build playlists of songs in YouTube and play those songs even when the screen's off, just like Spotify, for free. But... Okay, so so the downside with that with Spotify um, with that free feature, if you've got um, a playlist, it doesn't it doesn't play in the, in the right sequence, and it, it does mix it mixes it with some other random tracks as well. So it's not really viable. You mean in Spotify? Yeah, in Spotify. So if if YouTube yeah. does the same thing, then they, I don't think they will. I think they'll just let you play the playlist you make. I don't think they'll randomize the order or shuffle it, as we say. It says free background listening is table stakes among YouTube's competitors. Uh, well, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if it does force a shuffle. Uh, yeah, but if, uh, if... Uh, they're going to include ads anyways, so. Yeah, that's that's the most annoying part, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So Because yeah, until now, I think uh, people who had YouTube Premium could listen to YouTube in the background with the screen off but that was a, a monthly subscription service so Correct. it's interesting to see that direction yep so the next one's from forbes they said they have an exclusive that the government secretly orders google to identify anyone who searched for a sexual assault victim's name address and telephone number and we went through this one when we were here nine hours ago and it's quite amazing um, we talked about a headline a, a week or two ago where the FBI has basically caught everybody who stormed the Capitol on January 6th because they very cleverly asked Google, uh, show us everybody who had a phone inside the Capitol on January 6th, the morning of January 6th. Thank you. And they did. And they handed over, here's all of the devices and every all the users of all these devices. And here's a nice list of everybody who stormed the Capitol. And that's called a geofencing warrant where you can ask Google, tell me everyone within this geofence, this geography zone. They, you can do the same based on search terms, keyword searches. So uh, police agencies and the FBI and whatnot can say to Google, we want to see everybody who searched for this person's name on this day 
in this city to solve murders and whatnot. And so this has been going on for a while and it's now been publicly realized due to some court documents, what they're called keyword warrants. And yeah, people have, the federal government's been doing these for a very long time and now people are learning about it and now they're getting worried. Google used to do this with uh, the search terms. You could have actually a Google alert for every time somebody did a search, but then they secured the search histories. I think this is actually going to be a very valuable tool for helping protect victims of sexual violence or sexual assault. So it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. I'm curious if there's any pushback or alternative perspective that perhaps isn't necessarily uh, the best intentioned. Does anyone have a, a different perspective? The only, um, the only potential negative, um, comments are coming from the fact that quite often with these things, it's a slight, a slippery slope, a slippery slope, a sliding scale, as it were, you know, a frog boiling in oil, and that nobody can argue that this isn't an exceptionally wonderful. Um, use of the data that Google has access to, but it starts off with one thing and then it becomes another thing. And then you see, well, you did this thing, so maybe now for this particular case, we also need access to this. Um, so you've seen this, um, for instance, with um, medical data for uh, things like um, 23andMe and Ancestry and those kind of services that do DNA profiling. And um, and they have, they individually have, if the companies have um, slightly differing policies on uh, what point will give over information, um, as in it has to be a violent crime, it has to be a homicide, it has to be uh, a case of rape, for instance, that they need to, they, they want to profile a specific piece of DNA and get data from, from the, these private companies' repositories. Um, but there's been a couple of instances where um, that hasn't been the case, where the victim is just... I'm going to use the word just, but it was a, a, a violent assault, for instance. And the case to be made is that it's always, it is a sliding scale. Um, and that what it starts off as isn't necessarily where we're going to end up with these profiling, whether you're talking about data profiling or whether you're talking about um, DNA profiling or, or biometric profiling or anything like that. Fair point. Thank you. Uh, that's, a, that's a very good uh, consideration. Okay, next up is this one from Bibi from Nikkei Japan. Chinese property developer Fantasia fails to repay bonds now. Investors on edge as bigger rival Evergrande teeters on edge of default, and now you've got some of their competitors in similar situations. Domino effect, they're calling it. And next up is this one from Dr. Fran that the Netflix new hit series squid game is now a vr game fight for your life in this fan-made vr game based on netflix's immensely popular south korean survival drama and netflix itself is getting into games including vr games and here comes the merger the kind of the head-on collision between the video game industry and the hollywood and uh, it's going to get very confusing. We're going to, and we're going to need new terminologies for these hybrid experiences in VR. Between, is it a game or a show? Netflix is. Sorry, go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say it doesn't. 
I don't know, does, does it matter? I mean, it's just it's the next level of content. It, over the years, have, have gotten more and more um, narrative driven, a lot of and then um, content, TV content has gotten more sort of interactive. Netflix themselves have got the Black Mirror series, they've got the Bear Girls series, both of which are you actually interact with the series during it. Um, I think there was a game a few years ago, Quantum Break, I believe, where it actually had the game was a, a very narrative driven game, but it also linked up with um, it linked up with the series themselves. So this each season, each season of the series that came out would actually change the content of the game. Um, things like reoccurrence, FIFA, um, will actually change um, depending on sort of the roster of each year of, of what's going on in the real world sport. Um, the F1 games are exactly the same. The WWE games are exactly the same. In fact, narrative from the show into the games. So this has been merging for a little while. What we have is a singular platform like Netflix. To a combination of the two, where you can watch the Twitch, uh, the Witcher series. And then actually go and play that that season and just play it differently, which is going to be be very very cool. Yeah, to think that uh, Netflix started with DVDs. I saw one of their billboards recently. It's like, hey, we started with DVDs. Follow your dreams. And I was like, hell yeah, Netflix <laughs> is awesome. <laughs> so the next one's from Doctor Fran. It says NFT artists come together in VR to raise money for Haiti. Bid on NFT artwork from popular NFT artists to help rebuild Haiti after this year's devastating earthquake. It's kind of an interesting concept of using VR for fundraising and charity, especially. Uh, and Scott at uh, Charity Water deserves credit for pioneering this, I believe, because he was doing his Charity Water. He built a VR experience where he took a VR camera to Africa where he had dug wells to engage with one of the communities there before during and after they installed a water pump well and um and you could go there through vr and see what it's like living in this community in africa and before the water and walk with the lady down you know many kilometers to the local water source and walk back and um and then watch them build the well and then after the well and how to pump the well and uh, this idea of creating a lot of empathy through vr through for uh, crowdfunding efforts like this is kind of genius. And you can, to add NFTs to that even more so, it's, it's quite amazing. So just tweeting that one out. And then we've got... And, and in schools, right? Sorry, Tyler. Yeah, and yeah. In schools, that would be amazing. Like exposing, I would love for, for my tenure, I mean, he's exposed anyway through the likes of YouTube and whatnot. And, and they learn about certain things in school. But I would love for him to really experience what it's like to to sort of live in... So the roughs of Africa, for instance, or, you know, to experience the culture of, of China and and what it's like to be affluent, but also disadvantaged in those places. That would be amazing. But to have to have it through a technology that's seriously engaging, where it's not just, oh, I'm looking at something on a screen. I think it would be incredibly beneficial to uh, a whole lot of Westerners who have lost touch with reality about <laughs> about life on planet Earth. and. Uh, they are, have more in common with the Queen of England than your average person on Earth. Um, just living in their own little crazy bubbles. I have there, uh, somebody uh, that I know on Facebook yesterday was ranting about some incredibly trivial grievance 
about shopping on an Ikea website and how just ranting about how Ikea, how can you not know the inventory amount of this item until after I get to the checkout and now you tell me that it's sold out. Why didn't you tell me it was sold out? Why did you even let me click the option to buy it? And I'm thinking, dude, you need to, you need to spend a little time in Haiti. <laughs> you need to get yeah, on a plane. Like, um, how, how can you scream at your neighbor for having a Republican flag? If you have a deep understanding of what a, an eight year old child goes through in, in Nigeria, for instance, yeah. like, yeah the screaming happens for a democratic flag too so it goes both ways yeah yeah but you get my point isn't it it's it's like you it gives you perspective these are first world problems yeah so the next article is well here's some here's some first world problems Uh, oh boy I, i wait hang on here we go so this is from Jeff G and the audience this is from the guardian the headline reads australia warns china against threat to Threat or use of force following Taiwan air incursions. Uh, Australia weighs into dispute, saying it wants an Indo-Pacific region that is secure, prosperous, and based on the rule of law. And uh, Taiwan, when we met in the room nine hours ago, uh, their minister says, we're preparing for war with China and we're asking for your help, Australia. Literally those words. So... Now Australia is responding and telling, warning China uh, against threat or use of force following, Ty, you know, all of this Taiwan escalation. Now, the saw a humdinger of a opinion piece since we met last time about this escalating tension between uh, uh, the the Taiwan Strait, and so here it is, right here. Uh, the next headline is from thehill.com from Jeff G. And it's the headline is White House puts China on notice. The Biden administration is warning China over its increasing provocations against Taiwan, a critical flashpoint amid the ongoing poor relations uh, between the two world leaders. And somebody d- made the the point of saying that they don't think modern day Americans can stomach uh war we're not we not the current generations you know it was the the war that we are used to is you know this very remote concept in the middle east done by drones and yada yada and you know our grandparents generation actually fought in korea and, and then made some of our parents fought in vietnam but younger generations of america really have no real concept of what real war actually is about when you start to have huge numbers of casualties and heavy. They can't even handle the IKEA website, right? So uh, that's different my generation pre- altogether. Precisely my point. So, but but this is my also my point is countries that have not been at war for a very long time, and Sweden is at the top of that list, and and that's that's simultaneously uh, praise and and kind of a point that you know they start losing, uh, they start. Forming different kind of social norms, forgetting that that's is a is an existential reality, and uh, things societies change very quickly, and cultural norms change very quickly as a result of wars, and um, it's very interesting. Anyway, so the next one is oh, Doctor Fran proposes a tech news jeopardy. 
<laughs> okay, here it is. Oh, oh, shoot. Undo, retweet. Undo, undo, undo. Here we go. Tech News Jeopardy, everybody. Compliments of Dr. Fran. And the question is, which country is most implicated in the newly leaked Pandora Papers? Which country has the most... Okay. Switzerland. Russia. Russia. India. USA. India. America. China. Time's up. Number one is Ukraine. Number two is Russia. Number three, United Arab Emirates. And then Honduras, Colombia, Nigeria, UK, Brazil, and Angola. And I'm tweeting it out. Right, now. because uh, right because all tax evasion or tax gymnastics is legal in America. Right. right. <laughs> so <laughs> the last one today, we got through all the tweets yet again. Well done is from the New York Times about the Nobel Prize in Physics awarded to awarded for the study of humanity's role in changing climate. The work of Siukuro Manabe and Klaus Hasselmann and Giorgio Parsi demonstrate that our knowledge about the climate rests on solid scientific basis, that it's the result of humans. And they predicted this uh, quite early before ostensibly any uh, any other notable folks and so they've won the Nobel prize in physics very cool indeed and um did we do it we did oh there's a couple of headlines since the last one came in for example uh, the the TSMC boss says that companies are hoarding chips Johnson and Johnson seeks US clearance for COVID vaccine booster doses and uh, from South China Morning Post, Chinese team develops camera to quickly spot defects in solar panels. There you go. We did it. That's all the tweets, everybody. We did it. Wow. Ten, min 10 minutes early. So we will meet again tomorrow. Have a wonderful rest of your Tuesday. Go enjoy that subway. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, everyone. Okay. See you here tomorrow. Tyler,